see. In law school, Rudy, they don't teach you what you need to know. It's all theories and lofty notions and big fat ethics books. What's wrong with ethics? Nothing, I guess. I mean, I believe a lawyer should fight for his client, refrain from stealing money, and try not to lie. You know, the basics. That was blatant ambulance chasing. Right. Who cares? There's a lot of lawyers out there. It's a marketplace. It's a competition. What they don't teach you in law school can get you hurt. Hello, and welcome back to the Director's Wall podcast, season two Coppola cast. I'm one of your co-hosts, AJ Gonzalez. And I'm another co-host, Brian Connolly. And today, this is a special episode. We have with us a guest, uh, actor, musician, creator of and host of Radio 8 Ball, and with Brian, co-host of The World is Wrong, Andros Jones. Woohoo! Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. I've been waiting to do this episode for so goddamn long. <laughs> it is a special occasion purely because we have finally made it to the Rainmaker. I oh. know. It's crazy. Like it felt so far away at a certain point. Like when we were doing like Apocalypse Now, it was like, man, the late nineties, like it's gonna be a long time before we get there. And I was right, it was a long time for us to get yeah, here. Like but you know, we're not the most presidential administrations have changed. There was a <laughs> epoch changing pandemic, but we finally made it to the Rainmaker. We did it. Uh, yeah. yeah. Now this is and exciting. luckily all and, uh, of the problems that are addressed in this film are no longer issues that we have to <laughs> I know. With. Like that can't be real. They're making it up for the movie. Art really <laughs> can change the world. <laughs> You know, if one person can watch this and be like, you know what, I'm gonna quit my insur corporate insurance job. You know. Anyways, we're we're jumping ahead. Uh, so I am Jackie Lemanchik. Into... I am Jackie Lemanchik. <laughs> sorry. Yes. Sorry. Go on. Before we get into it, we always like to talk about the Coppola wine that we're enjoying. Uh, this is the part that Andre says he skips every time he listens to it, but he's gonna have to sit through it now. <laughs> Because you're on the show, <laughs> but I'm having the uh, Coppola Rosso and Bianco Pinot Grigio. I've had this before. We've talked about it before, so I don't need to read it again. But this is my favorite of the Coppola whites. It's it's really good, especially on a warm afternoon, uh, such it is in here with my fan off. Highly recommend it. AJ, you have a skull mug. What are you drinking out of this skull mug? All right. So out of my uh, Shocktober seasonally appropriate skull mug uh i'm drinking the francis coppola diamond collection cabernet sauvignon 2018 uh this one we have to have had the cab before even though i have a list of all the wines we've had i never look at it apparently uh, <laughs> let's see this is uh concentrated with aromas of blackberries cherries and spice with flavors of plum currants dried herbs, and toasted oak, delicious with steak tacos. That sounds oh. good. <laughs> steak tacos, prime rib, or pasta with red sauce. Okay. Yeah. Um, I like it. it. It would go good with a steak taco. I, I can imagine that. Uh, I, I don't have a Coppola wine, but uh, since this is such a special occasion, uh, I've hauled out a special bottle of champagne that I've been toting around for a whole <laughs> week. 
Oh, boy. I was recently staying at the uh, Hotel Deluxe in Portland, Oregon, where, unbeknownst to me, I had booked myself in a hotel that was entirely movie-themed. So there were all these movie posters on all, like not movie posters, stills from movies all over the walls. And the, the walls hey. were like little, they had, every floor was a sort of a museum dedicated to certain directors. Uh, there were, uh, Hitchcock was the only one who got his own floor. But like there was a, a, a hallway for Capra and a hallway for Wilder and a hallway for John Huston. And like there were, it was, I just walked through all of it. Anyway, when I got there, there was a letter says this is to car it was a direct uh, addressed to carpenter i'm not a carpenter so i didn't open it up but then i opened up the refrigerator and this bottle of uh, wycliffe brute champagne Ooh. fell out and on the back of the envelope there was a note that says champagne in the refrigerator so i took them both down to the desk and the guy uh, the desk guy was so uh, impressed with my honesty that he gave me this bottle he's like you keep it just keep it yeah it's all so Oh, to screw off top? Oh, I think I had to screw Good. off. Oh, okay. There was a little bit of a something there. It's kind of cool because I guess I can screw it back on. But cheers nice. to uh, to to yeah. finally reaching right. the rainmaker. Cheers. Probably Francis Ford Coppola's best film. Wow. You know, it's the one. Uh, we'll we'll get into this, but it's the one where I keep uh, comparing it to The Godfather. I more than I. I have notes where I will do the same thing. <laughs> okay. This is exciting. So let, let's do the plot. It's my job to do the plot. And this is a big plot. Uh, there's a plot with a lot of twists and turns in it. It's based on a novel by John Grisham, also called The Rainmaker. And I don't want to go into every little nook and cranny of this plot because this is like The Godfather, a kind of an epic sort of sprawling tale. It's, a, it's very much a character film. So there's lots of characters. Each of them have their own thing going on. But the main character is Rudy Baylor, played by Matt Damon. He uh, is wants to be a lawyer. He wants to work his way up into the world of law. And he wants to, so he gets a job working for a small kind of sleazier law firm uh, run by J. Lyman Bruiser Stone, played by the great Mickey Rourke, back again with Coppola since Rumblefish. And in this little kind of strip mall law firm also works Deck Shiflet, played by the great Danny DeVito, surprisingly the first time in a Coppola movie, hmm. despite having been in movies for a very long time. But they kind of have their little cases, and but out of these cases, he there's two kind of very important, uh, or three important people that he kind of meets. One is a, a nice old lady named Miss Birdie Birdsong, played by the great Teresa Wright, who is an old Hollywood actress. I think she was in The Best Years of Our Lives. Is that right? Something yep, like The that? Best Years of Our Lives, Pride of the Yankees, uh, nominated for two Oscars in the same year. But this is her last film. Uh, and she plays like an old woman whose kids are kind of trying to take advantage of her and kind of get on her will and get what she wants and kind of make her change her will. But she also owns a little back house that uh, Matt Damon decides he'll represent her and rent this little back house. Cause why not? She seems like a nice old lady. And then another person he meets uh, played by Claire Danes called Kelly Riker, who has an abusive husband and she kind of, uh, she kind of 
he kind of protects her and, and tries to guide her through life, uh, protect her from this uh, abusive husband, played by Andrew Shu, who you might remember from Melrose Place. Is that the show yep. he was on? Or no, Party Five? I get them all Melrose mixed Place. up. Yeah. Was it Melrose Place? Okay. All those those guys look the same to me in the 90s. And then the most important uh, kind of person that he meets on this job is the Black family. Uh, Dot Black, played by Mary Kay Place, and Buddy Black, played by Red West, who in real life was a buddy of Elvis's. He was part of the Memphis Mafia, and this is a Memphis movie. So they are an old couple, and their son uh, had uh, their son, Donnie Ray Black, played by Johnny Whitworth, has leukemia. And he's dying of leukemia, and it's sort of uh, maybe not coming back, definitely not coming back leukemia. But he could have been saved with a bone marrow transplant, but their insurance carrier, Great Benefit, Boo. which is the, the, the corporate insurance carrier, denies them to be able to cover, to get this the thing that would have saved him. And so then that kind of all... And so the movie, this movie, and we'll get into it, but this movie is long. It's like 140 minutes. And what's great about this movie is like, even though I just told you a bunch of plots, the movie is really all about kind of hanging out with these people. And you really don't get into sort of the John Grisham, like the lawyer law stuff until the very end of the movie. That's kind of when you get more into the trial scenes, when it feels more like a good Sidney Lumet film. But for the first half of the film, it really is kind of like a plotless hangout movie as Matt Damon is going between character and character, hanging out in Memphis, you know, getting his, uh, you know, just getting his uh, his his steps up in the world of being a lawyer. Uh, but then the movie ultimately focuses on the leukemia case, fighting the big evil corporate great benefit. And you have John Voight as Leal F. Drummond as one of the heads of this like awful <laughs> or he's the lawyer defending this uh, awful evil law firm or the uh, insurance firm sorry and then it turns into just a really good kind of john grisham law law lawyers fighting lawyers in a courtroom courtroom thriller this isn't a courtroom drama this is a courtroom thriller and this is directed and written by francis ford coppola and produced by mr michael douglas so it's uh, it's a it's a good movie and dare I say, one of the best couple of films, definitely top five for me. Like I think this is up there, maybe to me not as good as an Apocalypse Now or a Godfather, but very close. I think there's a few things holding it back from being a perfect movie, but I loved this movie a lot. And this is my first time watching it, and it was way better than I thought it was going to be. <laughs> I agree. I was also <laughs> really like pleasantly surprised, almost kind of blown away by the movie. Uh, I read the book before watching the movie. Okay. And reading the book the whole time, I'm thinking like, where, like, I think I know where this is gonna go, like plot wise, but like what's going to happen? There has to be something like a big shoe that's gonna drop, you know, at the end. And it, that kind of does happen and we'll get into that but um watching and thinking how do you adapt this because the book is like and coppola did it it's a, like a hangout book you meet this the guy rudy baylor it's first person narration and for the first hundred pages uh deck danny devito you know the the second lead in the movie and mickey rourke 
do not show up like you're just spending like all the time with rudy baylor getting to know him and like the lay of uh being a like soon to be barred law student in memphis and then yeah it's it, it's filled with great with great characters and i have to imagine that that's what attracted coppola to this and i that like great character an ensemble isn't really what i think of when i think of a, a john grisham book i think of like because uh, I'm, I'm only familiar with the movies up to this point I think of like The Firm and The Pelican Brief they're like these taut tense you know thrillers thrillers uh, but this was like a real uh, real surprise a real like character based ensemble ensemble movie so Andras you are a special guest why were you so excited to do this other than like is it just a great movie like because you were like when I told you I was doing a couple of podcasts I believe this was the first thing you brought up. It was like, oh, have you already done the Rainmaker? And I think I said, no, we're only on the Rain People. <laughs> and so, but you were like, you were adamant. And yeah, and this movie was on the list to be on our other show, The World Is Wrong. So clearly, this is a movie that you have thought about that you really like. So just kind of tell us maybe how you came to this movie because we both just only saw it for the podcast for the first time. So how did you come to this movie, and why does this movie speak to you? Why is it so exciting to you? Uh, well, we, we're going to talk a lot about that, but I think specifically it's it's a world is wrong situation. You know, this is a film that I saw. I think I probably got it on video the year it came out. Didn't see it in the theater, but saw. It, but I I got it pretty probably as soon as it came to the Hollywood Video near me, and really dug it. Um, the combination of this and Goodwill Hunting sort of won me over to Matt Damon. Um, mm -hmm. It was it was a film that I liked when I saw it, and it was then it's a film that I have gone back to over and over and over again, and it pays off every time. I watched it again last night. It was it totally paid off. Um, I have a we'll talk also. I have. Uh, I have a theory and feeling about John Grisham as a writer for film. I think he is kind of the perfect novelist for for film, at least for the kind of films that I want to see. So even when there's a it's a bad John Grisham film, if it's a John, well, we, again, we get into all of that. But um, yeah, I've just I've loved this film since it came out, and I never meet people who have seen it, especially film people, people who are especially Coppola people. I feel like a lot of Coppola people abandoned him before this film came out, and I think they just—I mm -hmm. think they missed out tremendously. I'm so—I'm so happy to hear that both of you love this film as much as me. I was a little bit worried that I'd be out on my own, <laughs> but I—but I'm just, I, yeah. I'm. Let me raise a glass of champagne to that. Oh my goodness, this is going to be a fun conversation. Yeah. So I guess before we get into sort of the the, the meat of the movie, I, I think it's good to maybe talk about John Grisham. And kind of where he was at when the because I know very little about John Grisham and I've only seen The Firm. That's the only other John Grisham movie that I've seen. But I think maybe for any younger people listening or people that didn't grow up in the '90s, like he was such an author that people were really into <laughs> in the '90s. Uh, and I never read any of his books, and I never was excited about the movies because the idea of just like a law lawyer trial movie just as a kid in the 90s sounded not interesting to me. 
Like I didn't see my first Lumet film until I was a grown up either. So just, you know, I was clearly wrong. But uh, what, like, so I want to know more about John Grisham from you guys, if you're more familiar with sort of his work, sort of where he was at by 97 and just sort of what, you know, what was it that people liked about him? Why was it connecting in such a big way in the 90s? Do you mind if I if I jump in on this? Because I'm, uh, I'm a little bit older than you guys. And so I don't know about you, but when The Firm came out, was it a big deal for either of you? No. Uh, no, it was the John Grisham movies. Like, I'm not sure I was aware of the name when I was a kid, but I was a kid. Like, when Raymaker came out, I think I was like 13 or 12. Yeah. So these were movies. And I saw The Firm, The Client. Uh, and the chamber and the time to kill with my mom. These are movies I watched with my mom, uh, and that's like as much as I knew about uh, John Grisham. So, uh, I think that's I think there's a so I'll I'll give you my experience because when the firm came out, it wasn't a John there was no there wasn't John Grisham films. It was the first film based upon a John Grisham novel. And John Grisham's novels were sort of like airport novels. It's like before people had phones that they could listen to on the plane, everyone had to like get little books that you could read <laughs> quick. On, and John Grisham's novels were perfect. If you started reading it on the cab, in the cab on the way to wherever you were going, if you're flying off across the country, by the time you got there, you were very close to the end of that book. <laughs> um, they just move and they're so it what it really was was kind of the first film of Tom Cruise really stepping into it's kind of his first adult role and his last kid role he's a guy graduating from college so he's still playing a college kid and entering the world but there's, this is right on the cusp of him taking control of his Tom Cruise-ness and becoming the Tom Cruise we know now instead of sort of the hunky boy from Top Gun and Risky Business. Um, and just the combination of Pollock, Tom Cruise, and what we would come to know as the Grisham, I don't know, engine for a kind of story is kind of perfectly rendered in the firm. And it's not my favorite of the Grisham novels. It's not my favorite Pollock and it's not my favorite Cruise, but there is some kind of perfection to it. And I think a lot of other movies sort of stand on its shoulders. I feel like uh, Soderbergh must have loved the firm because it's just, it does the heisty kind of movie in a proto Soderbergh kind of way. Um, and yeah. I'd love to talk and about if, it more, but have either of you seen that film? <laughs> oh, I love it. And I love that, like, I think it definitely helped kind of start the John Grisham thing, having a director as good as Cindy Pollack be the first guy to the table to make adapt your movie. And you have Robert Town doing the screenplay. And it's such like, and that movie was nominated for Oscars. And that was such like a good way to be able to introduce the world beyond who, who knew his books to like who John Grisham was and like being like this lawyer this lawyer thriller. And I think like before the firm, was there really a lawyer thriller? Like there were good movies about trials, like, and I, like bring it up again, like Sidney Lumet was kind of, I think the master of that pre the firm, like you I have like Jagged Edge. 
12 that's angry, what, 12 angry man well, is good the vert the verdict the verdict yeah. i think kind of is like a law thriller in a way the, the that's the yeah. sydney lament mammoth movie with paul newman i was gonna bring up uh, jagged edge as well which i saw recently uh it's it's uh written by joe esterhouse one of his first big uh uh big hits where he kind of got auteurship of that movie uh and yeah that's a movie that is a legal thriller but it's also like involves a murder mystery jeff bridges is on trial and glenn close is defending him and so there's the mystery of uh uh like well if he's not the killer then who is and like <laughs> oh but maybe he is or maybe he isn't so that's really what's going on uh what's driving that and you can think of it as like a murder mystery you know uh, wrapped in a wrapped in a courtroom courtroom drama but when you get to like the firm and then later on the client it's really like the the law the world of the law yes and that's what's kind of driving <laughs> yes what's driving yeah. the movie it, it's not just the character as a lawyer like the lumet stuff like 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 the verdict is definitely more detectives. about him as a lawyer and 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 like uh, Guilty as Sin came out the same year as the firm. That is Rebecca De Mornay's the lawyer, but again, it's more about a lawyer kind of cop. I think it's not about sort of the law world. But you, you get that, with the firm, you get more like this: what the world is like yeah, to be Grisham a lawyer. Yeah, is like he. Th we'll, we'll talk about it. Uh, so uh, listeners of the world is wrong will know. People, listeners of the director's wall won't know. I am. Uh, I'm. Pr I'm a pretty strong anti-Sorkinite and we don't really need to get into it but except to say that John Grisham to me is the writer that uh, Aaron Sorkin gets credit for being like this sort of great <laughs> I liberal understand voice what you mean. <laughs> and the reason I think he is is because I think Grisham is genuinely informed why his films are so great is he is such a law nerd whereas I feel like Aaron Sorkin <laughs> is sort of like a pop culture nerd who somehow gets credit for like referencing things he reads on Wikipedia or whatever. But anyway, we can, <laughs> we don't need to get into all of that except to say that really that Grisham, I think you're nailing it is that what sets him apart. And I think what sets all great filmmakers apart or great writers apart is their nerdy obsession with a particular world that they are so they know so innately that then they can tell a story in that world while introducing us to that world as as someone who really knows it as opposed to doing like if you are if any of us wrote a legal screenplay we do all the stuff yeah. that we've <laughs> seen in movies about lawyers and it wouldn't be <laughs> but like yeah. Grisham was an actual lawyer yeah. is that right yeah. yeah and he decided to become a writer he was writing and while, he was writing while he was a lawyer he wrote uh, Time to Kill. And that got turned down, and then he d then he wrote the firm, and that got picked up, and then he just ran. It just it went. It was, it lit a fire, um, and he is he's like one of those Stephen King kind of people who just like once he got licensed to write, he just wrote. And your description is kind of great uh, about the hangout thing. It's like it's like Stephen King. Like he's known as a horror guy. Like uh, John Grisham is known as a legal guy, but why they're so great is that they are great character writers. They love to just hang out with their characters and yeah. build a world and have them walk around and talk to weird people, to like people that they actually know, <laughs> like people that, that John Grisham has met, lawyers and clients and prosecutors and judges. <laughs> and you can just feel it. And I, uh, 
So we, I don't want to stay totally on the firm, but one thing I was thinking, I've been thinking about the firm is because it's Pollock and Cruz, and they're they're also I'm sure they're already eyes wide shut involved in some way by this point <laughs> or there's some kind of like crossover with this like the paranoia in this world and the lawyer doctor tom cruise as a pawn of some evil shadowy thing um i just feel like the, the vibe of this movie is kind of like rosemary's baby meets the mob um <laughs> and we'll get into it but i feel like the reason this film isn't as great I think it's it's really really great, but when we're going to get into what's great about the Rainmaker and the the films that I really love about Grisham, uh, he when the enemy in his movie is the mob, it's not as rich as when the enemy is an evil is someone you can sue and put out of business. You can't put the mob out of business, but you could put great benefits out of business, and that is what makes it really fucking rich because we want to do that. Um, so, so that's the firm. So, so then uh, the the Pelican Brief was the next movie, which I've not seen, but I want to because I like those actors a lot: Julia Roberts, Denzel Washington. And I feel like it's got to be good because it's it's Pakula, and I feel like I could see Pakula doing a John Grisham thing really well, just based on him already making, you know, like the like the all the presidents men and kind of really good at doing that kind of conspiracy fighting the big man sort of thing. Like, how does he pull it off? Is the Pelican Brief good? AJ? I really like the Pelican Brief. Yeah, it's it's really good. I've seen that one uh, fairly recently, and it it is a good thriller. And what I love, uh, one thing I love about it, because the performances are great, it's really like well-structured, it's got this amazing cast of actors, as all movies on based on John Grisham novels <laughs> tend to be, uh, I, I found. But what I love about the, the Pelican Brief is that it starts out with uh, Sam Shepard is a law professor. The main character is Julia Roberts. She is uh, dating Sam Shepard, which I do not approve of. Students and teachers, that's just, <laughs> that's a line for me. But uh, she, two Supreme Court justices have just died mysteriously. And she like goes, hmm, writes a paper about how maybe their deaths are connected and is connected to this thing, this corruption thing. And then that leads back to the White House gives it to Sam Shepard and he's like hey like my girlfriend wrote this interesting thing shows it to someone and then people start dying <laughs> and it's like but she's a law student at Tulane University the White House and uh, Tony Goldwyn who ends up being like you know he ends up being the Tony Goldwyn of the movie could have just been like yeah that's what is a third year what does a third year law student know come on she don't take her seriously but instead they start killing people they hire sinister master of disguise stanley tucci to start picking out these people one by one oh and man it, so it's fun it's fun it's thrilling and it's like that's the MacGuffin and Grisham and Yepakula do this MacGuffin of like a law student had this crazy idea. Okay, forget about that now. Now we're into the thriller movie. Personally, I, I, I it's one of my lesser Grisham films. Um, I, Julia Roberts' whispering performance is really weird. It's like this <laughs> one note whisper performance that really, uh, I wish she brought her Aaron Brockovich. To this role, I would have lo I would have really <laughs> really loved it because I also feel like a lot of uh, that's another place where I feel like Soderbergh 
riffs from Grisham. I feel like Aaron Brockovich feels like a real Grisham hangout movie. Like there's some I can see that, that feels I can see that. And and I wish you know I maybe so Soderbergh actually thought that when he was watching. He's like, oh man, someone should put a movie where Julia Roberts gets to actually be strong in the movie. Um, but uh, <laughs> and uh, but we do have a strong we have a stronger enemy, which is uh, the or a stronger sort of liberal discussion, which is the Supreme Court and who who's on the Supreme Court. And this is again Grisham sort of making that kind of movie or writing that kind of movie. But Pakula didn't get to inherit the mantle of the Grishamizer because that would fall to Joel Schumacher. <laughs> Mr. Who, Joel Schumacher. Who got two bites at the apple. Uh, yeah. With The Client yeah. in 1994 and A Time yeah. to Kill in 1996. And I have feelings about both, but I'm curious what your thoughts are. <laughs> I, again, never seen them, but those were the two that I remember the most people seeing. I remember those being, like, really, really popular at the time, especially A Time to Kill. A lot of people uh, making fun of and quoting the Samuel Jackson. Uh, a fair sentence. Objection, Do you think they honor. deserve to die, Mr. Haley? Answer the question. Carly, Do don't answer that to question. Die? Yes, they deserve to die, and I hope they burn in hell. Which just became such a thing. That's and... something me and my friends at school when we were, like, <laughs> 10 or whatever said all the time and is and is this the first uh of the matthew mcconaughey like i'm just a southern guy who's like taken seriously and also will lead to the john grisham knockoff what's the one he made it's not a john grisham the lincoln thing. lawyer, the lincoln which, lawyer. Every, which feels yeah. like lincoln such lawyer. a grisham it's a it's a grisham not wannabe, grisham, but, but it's, it's a very feel... good grisham wannabe it succeeds there you go yeah, yeah. But yeah, how did Joel Schumacher get that? I don't know. In the 90s, he was sort of the go-to if you wanted a guy to make a movie but not add too much of a flourish. You can hire a Joel Schumacher, you know. You uh, still crank about, out hits, you what, know. What do you think, AJ? Did you did you like those films? Uh, I did. I watched The Client uh, recently, actually uh, just last week in preparation for this and wanted to watch some other Grisham-based uh, Grisham movies. And The Client was a movie I saw with my mom when I was a kid because she wanted to watch it. So she rented it. And I was like, well, this movie has a kid in it. So clearly I have to watch it. Mm -hmm. You know, like it's for me. It's for me, a, uh, a like a nine-year-old kid. And <laughs> it's, uh, it's a good movie. It's, uh, you know, a, a thriller. The mob is trying to get after this kid because... Uh, he knows where uh, an important body is buried. Yeah, it's a thriller set firmly within that world of the law, and it's and you've got Susan Sarandon and Tommy Lee Jones as a a, a U.S. assistant. He's he's uh, he's totally being the attorney. the fugitive. He's 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 the lawyer version of his character from The Fugitive. I don't care. <laughs> exactly, yes, and no, that, the that's kid. the perfect way to describe it. <laughs> Because he's like sort of the he's not the bad guy, but he is the antagonist. He's like, I have to do this thing. I don't care. I didn't kill my wife. I don't care. Like I'm just a nine year old boy. I don't care. I've got to do my job. And really, it's uh, Anthony Lapaglia uh, working for the mob who's after the kid. Uh, that is a great movie with this incredible cast: Susan. Sarandon, oh my, the cast is Emily crazy. Jones, you Brad have... Renfro. J.T. Walsh, Anthony Polly, Anthony Edwards, Will Patton, Bradley yeah. Whitford, Kim Coates. You Anthony haven't even Hell. gotten to John Deal yet. 
And he's awesome. Yeah. He's in both. Both. Ozzy Ozzy Davis yep. is in there. Like, and Ozzy Davis. Ah, oh. oh, yeah, loved it. And like, yeah, Time to Kill has uh, John Deal, Oliver yep. Platt, Brenda Fricker, Kiefer Sutherland, Ashley Judd, Chris Cooper, huh. Patrick McGowan, and Donald Sutherland, Kevin Spacey. Char- he's a great bad guy. Um, oh yeah. So Charles S. Dutton, like man, like the like the people show like for John Grisham, like. The actors came out for John Grisham in the 90s. Well, that's like, that all the, about, I think that's thing. all about the firm. You, the, the impact that the firm had as a movie when it came out. I have, to, I have to imagine it was a matter of massive packaging and like CAA. Like the, like the move, that movie represented such a, I don't know, a display of, of Hollywood power that, I just think it immediate it set off this feeding frenzy around his films and packaging, packaging. It was the age of packaging. And so I think that's why you have that. Um, and I think that's probably, I think Joel Schumacher was really good at that kind of movie business business. Um, he was so, really good at packaging a movie with big stars, like yeah. from St. Elmo's Fire all the way through Batman Forever. He knew how to just like, as many beautiful, famous <laughs> people in a movie together like um, yeah do it <laughs> so and good good beautiful famous people too you know like well yeah. yeah with these again this is where that grisham is the real sorkin thing is because so i think it's interesting to look at how joel joel schumacher refined the grisham thing and we'll make because we can it'll probably inform our conversation about coppola um so the client, I actually, I really, I really, really like that. And I, I, the cast is great. And I think Sarandon is really at her best in it. It's when she was at her peak of her powers as the sort of mature movie star that she's probably known best for. And uh, again, re- there's scenes that really feel like Aaron Brockovichy when she goes into, when she has to go into the office and sort of show down these guys who are un, uh, who are sort of devaluing her and i think that's where the film like even though the the enemy of the movie is of the mob is the mob the real battle is about sexism and a female lawyer trying to go up against mm. e- even a guy like Tommy Lee Jones who's basically mansplaining to her through the whole movie about how he, mm-hmm. like he's right and he needs to do, and she's like no i'm going to protect this kid and i'm going to do what's just um, really fantastic character, but then he really. So what I love is that he kind of. I feel like Schumacher takes a step back and really serves the story with uh, with the client. But once he's given license to go Schumacher, that's when we get a time to kill, which is <laughs> really uh, as just so pulpy and sweaty and so wants to be. Uh, to kill a mockingbird and <laughs> it's kind of like I don't know it's it's great and dumb in like perfect McConaughey it's a perfect launching pad for McConaughey as uh, as a leading man and in a way and and I, I and there is one thing that's really have you seen if you've seen it uh, either of you seen it you yeah, see yeah. it, AJ. So at the I'm end, when I'm, I'm a spoiler alert, I'm going to give you a spoiler. So at the end, when uh, 
Matthew McConaughey does this whole thing where he says, you know, I, I'm going to tell you this horrible story about this thing that happened to this girl, tells the whole story, and then at the end it says, now just imagine she's white. And that's that wins him the case. Um, <laughs> I, when I saw that, I was like, well, that's just a clear rip from Adam's rib and the speech that Catherine Hepburn gives about the character played by, I think, Judy Holliday in that, who shoots her, her philandering husband, and she gives this whole speech and says, and now imagine she's a man. And I, I was like, that's if, <laughs> if Schumacher added that, then that really sucks. And it's also kind of awesome. <laughs> it's also kind of awesome. But so I, got in, I went and got the book on tape. I wasn't going to read that <clears> whole book. Um, but I did listen, and even though he doesn't deliver that line in the lawyer doesn't deliver the line in the in the book, that is a bit that Schumacher, I mean that Grisham ripped off from the movie Adam's Rib. So shame oh, so on him. Oh, so he put it in, it's in the shame book. Shame on okay. both of them. Uh, and in this, of course, the enemy of this one is racism. Very diffuse, big sort of racism in general. Not uh, again. This is why. And we're going to get to why The Rainmaker is so great, because it is very the more specific his films are in its nerdy lawness and a client you can actually sue out of business. Putting people <laughs> out of business is the only thing lawyers can do. And, and so, uh, yeah, so we, we can move on. I don't how much do you want to talk about the chamber or the ginger? The chamber. Man? I'm interested in the chamber because it's James Foley who did Glengarry Glenn Ross. It's written by William Goldman. But I do not care for Chris O'Donnell at all. But I like Gene Hackman and Faye Dunaway a whole lot. So, is that, and that's the one right before The Rainmaker. This is 1996 for The Chamber. Uh, that's another movie I saw with my mom, and I think I felt I fell asleep while I was watching it. And then she uh, just told me, like described to me, what happened in the movie, in such a way that I feel like I've seen the movie, and it's all based on like a legal <laughs> loophole where Gene Hackman, who is uh, playing Chris O'Donnell's grandfather, has been sentenced to death, and uh, but by the gas chamber, which has been outlawed at the time of uh, you know the movie slash novel, but because his death sentence was like from however many years ago, he still has to die by the gas chamber, which is a horrible, horrible experience. Uh, that yeah, That's what I remember be, uh, being explained to me about the chamber sort of like with the Schumacher ones this is a, a really solid near miss um, it does suffer from Chris O'Donnell not really it's not through no fault of his own he <laughs> by the end of the movie he wins you over uh, to I, I, I am one over to him as an actor as a person as a character in the film but that's not what uh, but that has not the, been the case with any of the other leads before. Was you you know you like Denzel before you see Denzel in the in the Pelican Brief, and you know you like Tom Cruise, and even though Gene Hackman's playing the bad guy in the in the firm, you know you like him. And so Chris O'Donnell just he you know I look at him and I think God that's what would have happened to me if I had been gotten lucky and lucky and gotten those leads in those movies in the nineties. <laughs> I would be the guy we're talking about. He's like. Why is he in this movie? Anyway, uh, 
he just he's fine but he just doesn't have that, even that charisma uh but uh but the, the story is is really uh what's great about it is it's it's more complex it's the it it focuses on a more complex story it's the death penalty it's a character who if any character deserves the death penalty it's probably him because he was a, a hitman for the for the clan basically blowing blowing people up for the clan and he's convicted of blowing up a Jewish man and his two kids and his office. So in this case, you know, the enemy is the death penalty and the Ku Klux Klan. It's a nice, it's a nicely complex film. Not necessarily what I want from my Grisham. Uh, I, I, <laughs> I want a little bit like, and, and that's, that's maybe my weakness, but when we get to the Rainmaker, it's just so lean. Like you have an, a clear cut enemy and a guy like trying to use like a true believer in the law trying to use the law now let's 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 skip past the rainmaker and we'll go back to it so then after the rainmaker in 1998 is the gingerbread man the worst which interests me because one. it's robert altman which seems like I, very i've weird. never seen that i haven't it, been i haven't been able to track it down i was interested because it was robert altman it's the i think it's the i think it's the worst of the ones that there are some that i i like the Christmas with the cl- the ones where he's his legal thrillers, <laughs> uh, the Gingerbread Man is the worst, and it's, I'll say I'll tell you why because it's just a, it's about a lawyer who sleeps with his client and then gets caught up in all this stuff, and the the drama comes out of the the mob or whoever the bad guy is is going after his kids and he's trying to fight for his kids in the rain, and it's Kenneth Branagh giving a really a, a, what I there's a period of his life where he was doing great performances in movies where. It just didn't matter. Like I feel like uh, the one that he did, Celebrity with Woody Allen. Celebrity. Like, it's a great <laughs> performance great. in a movie it. where it just it doesn't matter. Doesn't it's gonna like, whatever, like, yeah. the better you are at it, the more it highlights that there's something just not right here. Um, he's fantastic in it, but the film is if you want a Grisham, what's good about a Grisham movie is not there. And, and that's the only yeah. one that's not based on a novel. He just has a story by credit. Yeah. So I. So maybe that's why it sucks. Maybe yeah. that's why it's. It just. And then you have uh, Runaway Jury, which is sort of the last big one. And that's a great cat. That's the filmmaker, Gary Fletter, is not as big as the other filmmakers we've talked about. He did Things to Do in Denver When You're Dead and that mm-hmm. movie Imposter. So he's sort of like the least auteurish of the filmmakers but you have a stellar cast of gene hackman back again lo- clearly loves doing his grisham john cusack rachel weiss dustin hoffman like that's a good another uh john cusack jeremy piven uh movie that they did together so like that just that cast alone makes me excited to see that yeah um as much as i love the rainmaker i think the Runaway Jury is the best John Grisham novel to film. Like, mm. the the perfect one. There's a couple things that are interesting about it. First of all, well, for, the enemy is uh, Gene Hackman playing a guy who manipulates jury selection on behalf of the gun industry. So whenever anyone tries to sue the gun industry after a mass shooting... He goes in and fucks with the jury pool and manipulates the jury pool so that the tri- so that the whoever's suing the gun industry loses um, 
and just he's a totally corrupt corporate piece of shit. And <laughs> John Cusack is a guy who is trying to get on a jury, and we don't know why. But we figure he's good, and and uh, and so it gets into all like it it has the all the Grisham stuff about jury selection. The whole film is about jury selection. So it's super, super nerdy law stuff. Plus, it's all of the different ways that John Cusack, with uh, the help of his girlfriend, who's on, who is on the outside, played by Rachel Weiss, how they are heading off their fight. They're, they're fucking up Gene Hackman's game. So he's the guy who's trying to manipulate it, and he doesn't know why and we don't really know why John Cusack and Rachel Weiss are doing this and they're portraying themselves as people who are just going to sell the jury they're we're going to flip the jury for whichever one of you whichever side pays us and the other side is Dustin Hoffman as this very integrity kind of lawyer who is he's like I'm not going to pay you I'm not going to pay you where Gene Hackman is like well I don't want to pay you but if I have to how much and then it's just it's all of people playing each other off of each other and faints and like funny, weird ways that John Cusack is able to manipulate the jury to show how in control of it he is. And uh, and at the heart of it, and this is kind of film nerdy great, um, Gene Hackman and Dustin Hoffman were roommates before they, they were famous, when they were both young actors in New York. And not even young actors, they both became successful sort of in their late 20s, early 30s. Like when they, they'd they already spent at least eight to 10 years watching other people become Warren Beatty or whoever in their acting <laughs> classes. Gene Hackman was cast as Dustin Hoffman's father in The Graduate, and right. then he got fired and replaced by William Daniels. But that's where <laughs> Gene Hackman was at in the late 60s, right. like playing the father. <laughs> so this is the only time that they have acted together. That's and, crazy. And it That's insane. And actually it led me to this whole thing of looking at like, oh, Gene Hackman knew when he was going to quit. He quit on his own terms. It's interesting to go back and look at what he did with his last five years as an actor, because you know he went to his agent and said, look, I'm cutting out at this age. I want a nice balance of things that I really want to do and things that give me a shit ton of money. One for me, <laughs> one for them for the next, you know, like get me, you know, go out and get me the good stuff. And I have some, maybe I have some stuff I want to do, like I want to work with Dustin or something and they do have a great scene, one great scene in the bathroom where they they yell at each other and talk about the law and uh, <laughs> kind of similar to the kind of scene showdown that uh, Matt Damon and John Voight have when in The Rainmaker when he's like, when did you even do you even remember when you sold out for the first time? Like that kind of integrity, <laughs> law kind of, again, super nerdy law stuff. The performances are incredible. The enemy is not, this is why it's, I think this is why it's the pinnacle because the enemy is the gun lobby and the gun makers, but it's even more specific. It's putting Gene Hackman out of business, <laughs> putting this one guy <laughs> who manipulates juries on behalf of these evil people out of fucking business. And it's so <laughs> targeted and so great. And you have these really strong heroes and you have a strong, I think it's the best one of balancing 
a strong male lead and a really strong female lead. Uh, I think other than the, the, the client, I think that's the only other one that really has the, like Rachel Weiss and John Cusack are real co-leads and they both get to do awesome manipulative stuff to these bad guys, sort of like uh, with uh, Matt Damon and the fo- and the, the, uh, the tapped the tapped phone that we'll get into in the Rainmaker. So jury yeah. tampering. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so what's weird is then that was kind of the end of John Grisham. Did he stop writing books? Did no. he go back to practicing law? Did he retire? Like why was just the fad over with by two thousand three? You know? What happened? Because like there were some TV movies he did, a painted house, don't know what that is. Oh yeah. I, my I you know, my I told you my theory on a painted house. That it's the it's sort of like uh, investigating the world of the Irishman because, you know, because he paints houses and this is about one of the houses he painted. Oh, okay. You win the that jackpot kind of, of mentioning the Irishman on our podcast every episode. <laughs> Woo, the Irishman drink some champagne. At least once. At least once it has to come up. Why? I don't know. That's just I'll drink to that. Drink. And I think once we're done with Coppola, before we go on to the next director, we, we have to do a bonus Irishman episode. I think it's like a given, right? We have to do that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I will gladly <laughs> watch that three-plus-hour movie again. That's um, a four-plus-hour yeah. movie. But You're right, you're right. But, um, but yeah, Grisham just stopped. Like, you have Christmas with the Cranks, which is weird. That's actually based on a novel he wrote. The movie's fine. Skipping it's totally Christmas. Skipping Christmas. Which is a better title than Christmas with the Cranks. Yeah. Totally fine movie. Jamie Lee Curtis, Tim Allen, Christmas comedy. It's totally family appropriate. I don't understand why that's a John Grisham thing, or maybe the novel's better. And then. Well, that's one I'm very curious to read because I think I'm harder on Christmas with the Cranks than you are. But it's, it's one of those Christmas movies where, like, I'll watch the Christmas movie. If it doesn't mention Jesus, I don't even notice, right? Like Christmas movies, they're about like warmth and kindness and being with people you love or doing nice things is fine. The Christmas with the Cranks is one movie I watched where I actually start to think like, wait a minute, isn't Christmas about Jesus? What's going on <laughs> with it? What's happening with the with, with this movie? I know John Grisham is he's a great writer. Like what what happened here? And so I, I'm curious to read <laughs> yes. Skipping Christmas, which I imagine some producer was like, we can't call it skipping Christmas because then uh, someone some a critic will be like be skipping like, Christmas yeah. skip this movie like a Gene Shalit would have totally said that yeah. of course that's crazy. the it's only like thing John that would Grish- make me watch actually the, that title makes me way more interested I don't want to spend crazy- Christmas with the cranks but I would love to skip Christmas why do we do this <laughs> but Grisham has written so many novels since 2003 why, why aren't they adapted into movies anymore are they not as good it I mean, seems I don't like know. He's got they so many books. Incredibly popular. I listened to an interview with him, and he just seems like he is—he is on the treadmill of just writing a book a year. He is just—he turns out a book a year. Uh, he seems really connected. He seems to know who he is. What he, he likes to write about issues. Uh, he has a wealth of information about the law, and tons of stories to tell and i have no idea i there's a part of me that feels like in 2003 did they just stop making 
I bet what it is is I bet he priced himself out of the market. I bet up until 03, you could make 20 to $40 million movies like Runaway. Like how much did Runaway Jury cost? It must have cost at least $30 million to make that movie. Uh, Joe, are you looking yeah. at the budget? AJ, I see you. <laughs> I am pulling it up right now. Yeah, I'm curious because I bet he got into it was also it was like on the the other end of that Joe Esterhaus thing where you could you were just they were throw you could throw money at writers mm. for a, who are, who were a brand and I bet he priced himself out and there's a probably as a part of him that's like hey I get 10 million dollars for for the rights and nobody is offering anyone 10 million dollars for the rights the the budget of Runaway Jerry was sixty million estimated. Yeah. The gro the domestic U.S. and Canada gross was forty nine million. Uh, the world right worldwide gross, however, was eighty million. So I think thing- it's the thing. I think it's the thing too that they just don't make movies for grown ups anymore, and these are movies for adults. And so, like in the mid aughts, you're getting the rise of comic book movies and like Iron Man and Spider Man, and like that's where all the money's going and that's what Hollywood wants to make. And you don't get these good, rich, smart movies for these adults. character movies. Well, like character I, movies for grownups. Like these aren't for teenage boys. Like these are for grown ass people who are smart <laughs> and make it a smart movie. <laughs> and, and also uh, if you look, I mean, the things that he's taking on are not things that major corporations necessarily, like movies that paint insurance companies and the gun industry, which are very profitable industries that affect the portfolios of the people who own the, you know, the film companies and the the hedge funds that fund them. (laughs) Maybe they don't want to make, like spend $60 million to make a movie attacking an industry that is helping their bottom line. It's almost like deregulation was a bad idea. (laughs) Anywho, uh, yeah, when I, I, I watch Runaway Jury also, uh, to prep for, to prep for this episode, uh, and also because I will watch anything with Rachel Weisz in it, and I hadn't seen that movie yet, <laughs> uh, and I I really liked it. I dug it. I thought it was a lot like The Rainmaker in how it was really about the intricacies and the minutia of the law and how you can, you know, fiddle with this one way or the other. Uh, but also, like, it kind of made me. I'm like, all right, like it's John Grisham. He's probably going to give us, uh, you know, a, a, a sort of happy ending at the very least. But I was like getting so nervous because I'm like, but it's the gun lobby. They always win. Like, and it's just so like, oh, like, you know, people start killing other people <laughs> when you argue about this kind of thing. Uh, yeah. And so like, yeah, that's uh and, and Grisham you, always you, did kind of without giving it away. Were you happy with the how that it resolved? Because I thought it was. I was. Yeah, I was. There was a there's a line in the movie which I don't remember exactly where Cusack reveals he wasn't. Um, this isn't really a spoiler, but uh, it's revealed like he that he wasn't going to tamper with the jury. He was just going to level the playing field. Yeah, and I think that is what actually the Rainmaker, what the novel does extremely well and what the movie does well but on a uh, a less obvious level is that i feel like john grisham was trying to show that all things being equal in an ideal world where everything was even you could easily take down a corrupt insurance company all you have to do is try 
and they know that you won't try so they get away they do all this stuff because they know they can get away with it because they know you're not going to try but all you have to do is actually try and they will go down like a paper tiger if you have a fair judge if you have a fair jury mm -hmm. and those things we don't get you know justice is what we what we strive for the law is what we live with and he's he's giving us a little bit of both you know he's he grisham shows us the ideal but then also never lets us forget what we actually have have to deal with in in our lives uh, even if you never step foot into a courtroom you know this stuff still affects you in one way or another yeah yeah so that brings Preach. us to let's go back let's <laughs> let's talk about the rainmaker finally yes. that we've had but i think it was fun to do that little like i think that was one of the reasons why i was excited to have you on here andres because i know you were such a big grisham fan and i feel a lot of people have forgotten about john grisham so i think even though that was like a nice long primer i think it's a necessary primer the world is wrong is an extremely positive podcast where andros jones and brian Connolly champion films the world is wrong about available on paperhouse network wherever you get your podcasts <laughs> so aj I'm, I'm assuming you know this what led coppola to the Rainmaker, where we let, where we last last left Coppola, he had done Jack, to mostly negative uh, opinions. Even though we both ended up liking that movie, yeah. Uh, um, so how great did episode, we get by the way, guys? Jack great to... episode, the Jack episode. Thank you, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> um, it it's odd because uh, so I'm, I have been reading sort of using as our companion Francis Ford Coppola, A Filmmaker's Life by Michael Shoemaker or Schumacher. And the Rainmaker is like, there's like 10, less than 10 pages left in the book because uh, this author wrote it in 1999. And all, like, like five of those, less than five are dedicated to the Rainmaker. Just right from Jack, next chapter is Coppola was at an airport. <laughs> Oddly enough, air, John Grisham being an mm -hmm. airport yep. style author. Uh, he read like number one bestseller. He had never read a Grisham book before. Like I should see what this Grisham guy is all about. Reads The Rainmaker, loves it. I want to do this as a movie. Writes Grisham this letter, which they show part of in the making of featurette. The first paragraph is like, you should come out to Napa. Like, it'll be great. We can do this. We can do this. <laughs> or I can go to Memphis. Or, but maybe you should come to Napa. But it's no big deal for me to go to Memphis. Uh, Copeland ended up going to Memphis. <laughs> and and then he made the movie it's uh, there's no heart of darkness style problems going on there's no godfather style problems going on it's like he read a book wanted to turn it into a movie and so he did uh this was uh distributed by paramount pictures and uh yeah the the book mentions that this was uh, like it casually mentioned that, that this was one of Coppola's jobs for hire. However, listening to Coppola's commentary on the DVD and the making of where it's like Coppola wanted to do this movie. This isn't the job for hire. This isn't one of those like, 
you know, he's doing Gardens of Stone or Peggy Sue Got Married just because he really needs to make his next, you know, payment to his creditors. He he wanted to make it. And a lot of the reviews for the film, both then and now, because this is streaming on HBO Max, so occasionally someone will watch it and then tweet about it, like something like, it's good, but why would Coppola make this? And it's like, because he wanted to. He didn't want to make The Godfather, the movie we all love and talked about. <laughs> he didn't want to do that. He didn't want to do Godfather 2, you know? But considering, uh, so he got to do the movie like his way. Uh, oddly, Dean Tavalaris does not do the production design on this movie. Coppola doesn't mention it in the commentary. I haven't been able to find out a reason why. And it's worth mentioning because of everyone he has ever worked with, Dean Tavalaris is like one of his closest collaborators. John Toll does a cinematography. Fred Roos, the casting, does casting going back to The Godfather, does the casting here, finds this young guy, Matty Damon, to be the lead. And this Coppola. was the first big star role. Like before this was Courage Under Fire, we had a bit part. But this is the first lead. Like this predates... Goodwill Hunting by a few months. It was the same. Yeah, this was the lead. This Ryan. was the movie. Aside mm -hmm. from like, uh, yes, there is the story of like Kevin Smith helps Matt helps his friend Ben Affleck and his friend Matt Damon get the movie made, but they want to be the leads. That's the whole. That's the whole catch. The whole deal with the movie why they haven't been able to get it made. But Francis Ford Coppola, director of The Godfather, picks out Maddie <laughs> picks out Matty Damon. I'm only calling him that because he's just. Some kid maybe recognize him from School, school ties. ties or Courage Under Fire. But he picks him out like, you're going to be the lead of the new Francis Ford Coppola movie based on mega best-selling author John Grisham. You're the lead. And because of that, he gets the, like, yeah, sure, you can be the lead in Goodwill Hunting. Like, that, that movie happens. The career of Matt Damon and Affleck happened. Because of Papa Coppola. And, yes. and I wanted to go, go on. Sorry. I think it's just so sad because this movie wasn't a huge hit. And man, if this movie had come out right after Goodwill Hunting, this movie would have been a fucking hit. And what I remember, my introduction to Matt Damon, and I think a lot of people's introduction to Matt Damon, was he was on the cover of Vanity Fair. I guess Goodwill Hunting had come out, but it was before any, like, it was like, who is Matt? It's like him, I think, in a bathtub raising a champagne glass or something. It's like, you hate this guy. <laughs> but it's like, who is Matt Damon? <laughs> Steven Spielberg, Francis Ford Coppola, and Gus Van Zant know, and you're going to know soon. And Coppola, <laughs> I, I feel like Coppola's name was the first on that list, but it was saying, it. that's what made Matt Damon that year it was it was saving private ryan goodwill hunting and the rainmaker and yeah. you're right yeah. this one gets got lost in the shuffle but it was I the first think, one <laughs> i think it's like i don't know i think all those all three of those films are great i don't want to set them up against each other that's a hell of a way to introduce yourself to the world as a movie star <clears throat> and they're right because he is so good in this movie like he is it's weird even though it's the same year as goodwill hunting he looks more of a baby in this than he does in and Good there's goodwill hunting. hunting stuff in this like we meet him he's working in a bar so, like selling drinks to assholes who are richer than him which is basically <laughs> the goodwill hunting scene so there's a mm -hmm. matt damon working class genius guy thing that is being built 
before our eyes. <laughs> and you read the you read the novel, AJ. Uh, what, can, you, t- can you talk about maybe what uh, what Matt Damon? Because you read the, you read the character on the page. Does is he playing Rudy Baylor? Is he playing Maddie, Matt Damon? Maddie, da- I'm not going to call him Maddie Damon. That's rude. <laughs> <laughs> That's uh, I'm uh, I. I won't say it uh, like like I'm ashamed. I'm a big Kevin Smith fan, and he he occasionally will call Matt Damon like Maddie, okay. or Maddie Damon. So that that's where that's where I get that Got from. Okay. No disrespect to Matt Damon. <laughs> he plays the character in the book in like the second half of the book, because when it starts out, this character he's he's young, he's cocky, and there's a lot of things he doesn't want to do because they're not only because they're unethical or immoral, but because they're beneath him, right? He's not going to be an ambulance chaser because, you know, that like that that's not right. You shouldn't do that. But also like, mm, like I'm not I'm not going to do that, even though that is practicing the law. You know, people that are injured do need, you know, to sue whoever like, yeah, I'm I'm not going to do that. I don't want to work for Bruiser Stone because that's like, ooh, you know, it's beneath him. And so I'm thinking. Um, for the first half of the the novel, I'm picturing Ben Affleck. Yeah, like Ben Affleck. Ben Affleck is the guy who is like cocky and self assured and arrogant, and then gets the you know gets the wind knocked out of him, has to adjust, and then come back, and he's like a new, uh, more earnest person, Changing and he does lanes. the right thing. Yeah, Matt Damon. I feel like he is. He's like the most believable Eagle Scout in this movie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, because like Ru- Rudy Baylor, he doesn't want to like the he doesn't want to chase ambulances with uh, with Deck with Danny DeVito because it's because it's wrong. But you never get the sense that it's because like he thinks uh, he he he's condescending to Danny DeVito uh, in in those scenes it's it's him he's trying to be he's trying to be the straight arrow and in the opening uh narration he mentions that like the reason he wanted to be a lawyer is because he was inspired by the civil rights lawyers of the 60s mm-hmm. and in the book it's it's more my father hated lawyers and i wanted to piss off my father mm-hmm. and like like that's an affleck thing like yeah i, I see ben affleck doing that or that's mcconaughey cool. i could totally see mcconaughey if he got was playing this role I could totally see him doing that and doing the turnaround. But you're right. Matt Damon is, he is like, he's like a, like a prince, you know, like this humble prince who has not yet ascended, but is going, like he plays it in this way of just like, he has been touched. He's an angel, right? He's an angelic figure who is going around trying to do the right thing. Not only is he going to use the law to do the right thing and make this insurance company pay, uh, like retribution wise, not just money wise, for this wrong that they've done, but he's going to protect the abusive woman and the he's abused take woman. Care he's, not, he's not protecting of, the abusive woman. Right, uh, wrong, <laughs> <laughs> wrong form of that of that word. I apologize. The abused woman is going to protect her, and he's going to be nice to the you know the old eccentric old lady. Teresa Wright as Miss Birdie, who wants to him, she wants him to do her will and leave her great fortune to this televangelist, and then no, she wants it uh, done another way, 
And so her family then thinks that she has a lot of money and they're very, uh, you know, like shallow, greedy people. But yeah. Matt Damon mm-hmm. notices they're being really nice to her now that they think she has money. And as her lawyer, he has found out, no, she doesn't really have a lot of money. <laughs> but I'm going to let them believe she has a lot of money so they can be nice to her. Uh, yeah, he's he's this all around good guy. Like the 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 struggle of the movie is all of the obstacles thrown in front of him. The obstacle like, is that he's not he's not a lawyer yet. That he doesn't know any <laughs> like he doesn't know anything. <laughs> That's part of what's I love that aspect of this. Like him well Brian like being I, corrected I like, in court yeah. uh, by people and uh it's it's uh I don't know if this is the case with other John Grisham stuff because I've not seen much and maybe this is a Coppola thing or a Matt Damon thing, but like I wrote down really big on my notes the word humanity. This movie has true humanity to it, which I feel is really rare in a movie. And it could come off as really hokey, mm-hmm. but it doesn't in this movie. Like it's like you like another movie could have someone trying to do these great things and all these sort of ideal things that we all good people think the world should be like, and it would just be fucking silly. But in this, it totally is believable and works. And you really feel that the Rudy Baylor character is a good man, is a good person. And then the movie itself just feels like this movie is correct. This movie's on the right side of things. This movie's doing it in a way that is totally effective and I believe in it. I believe in it. Maybe it's totally mm-hmm. believing in fairy tales and fairies, but it's a fairy tale that works for me where I watch it and I'm like, Matt Damon is really selling this character. And I'm really like believing mm-hmm. that like the good nature of his character and the good nature of this movie, yep. trying to really say something important and that's meaningful in a, within a huge Hollywood movie, which doesn't happen anymore and rarely happened even then. And the fact that they were able to do that and have it work and not feel stupid, I think is kind of what made me really, what really won me over on this movie. It's like, I really bought into it and I really believe in it. <laughs> and I feel the movie really believes in it. And I bet John Grisham really believes in it. And Matt Damon seems like he really <laughs> believes in yeah. it. And it's just like, it's all sold so well. And a different actor, I think maybe would have not done that, but there's something about the way that Matt Damon can play kind of an innocent or like a struggling guy who doesn't know anything, but he knows what is right. He knows the thing he stands for that is important to him. And that makes you follow him through the whole movie. And you're behind him the whole way, even when he fucks up and you're like, I want this guy to win. And again, because it's the big insurance companies, I thought, well, he's going to lose, right? This movie's going to have a terrible ending. (laughs) There's no way this is going to come out. Okay. Because they always win. Like so, there has to kind be of, something, and they and like I feel well, we'll get to it, but I feel like they do a pretty good job yeah. about giving us a pretty yeah. ambiguous, yes, like being yeah. able to give yeah. us the cathartic jolt that we but need. But the truth, but the truth, yeah, at it, the same time, re- this yeah, is it's one of yeah. Uh, it, this is one of like the great anticlimactic, but <laughs> extremely satisfying, yeah, uh, endings in movies. Again, let's just give it away because, so, like, people should watch yeah. it by now. Dare I say, just, all we'll time. And yeah, we well, we spoil everything. If you listen to this podcast, you know we spoil everything. So <laughs> I know, we but can I'm analyze a guest. It. You can spoil it first. Then <laughs> okay. I'll jump in. Um, so Rudy Baylor wins, and not only does he win, but the sum he asked for was that you want like actual damages, which is like the amount that they should have paid anyway, and impunitive dan- damages. 
which is the money they have to pay as punishment. And he just like, what's a big number of money? $10 million. And so then the jury, uh, they find in favor of, of Dot Black, of the family, and Rudy Baylor, and they award them something like $50 million. $50 million, yeah. Yeah, and it's insane. Not only has the insurance company lost, but they have to pay more than was asked. They have to pay enough that it's going to hurt. And then, and it's great. It's wonderful. It's a triumph. But then it turns <laughs> out that this uh, evil insurance company, being evil, is actually corrupt. And the big executives have been skimming <laughs> off the top. And Roy Scheider, who is a CEO, like tried to lead to another country but got arrested and the, whole, the company actually has like no money to pay anything with <laughs> to pay anything but themselves with and so the company then goes goes belly up it goes goes bankrupt it's destroyed and like and and i'm thinking and this happens in the novel as well and i'm thinking but well this is great this is better this is better not only has the insurance company been punished you know, they've mm -hmm. been slapped and like, don't do that again. Now they, they're gone. They, they can never find a new way to take advantage of people. And other insurance companies will be like, well, we, we shouldn't do anything like this. They're totally gone. But then struggling Matt Damon and Danny DeVito, who have zero dollars to their name, now have zero dollars to their name <laughs> and never will have any more money. And it ends with Matt Damon quitting the law like if i continue with the law everyone that hires me is going to expect the same kind of great result which i'm never going to be able to give <laughs> and if i try to i may like cross this ambiguous line and then become this shady corrupt lawyer like a, an outright evil lawyer or someone that just doesn't That's care a, like this is what i'm saying he is a prince he in the classic sense of literature he is a he is destined. He is the true carrier of the law. He is a true believer. He stumbles into greatness. He achieves this great win, and then, as a true hero, has to reject the throne and walk into the wilderness with the woman who he is protecting. It is, and this is one of the things I want to ask you guys. You've been doing this Coppola thing. Is this the first time and maybe the only time in Coppola's career that he has a full-on, genuine, no-questions <laughs> hero at the center of his movie? Not a flawed hero, not a broken hero, not a corrupt hero, a genuine, from beginning to end, hero. I think this is it and maybe the only one. Yeah, I think so. Even th There is probably an argument with Tucker but that is, uh, it raises questions because Coppola grew up with an idealized version of Tucker, uh, the man, Preston Tucker, the inventor, who in real life maybe did some shady stuff, but Coppola wanted to tell the story that he grew up with of you know, Preston Tucker as the maverick inventor who had the great idea of building a car that's actually safe and doesn't kill you when it crashes and the industry wouldn't let him but th yeah this is the one that feel and it's jeff bridges that really helps him just be charming the whole way through but yeah this is the one where he's like this is the good guy who is good at the start and he's gonna do this good thing doggone it <laughs> and he does and yeah. 
it doesn't work out exactly how it should but then yeah you're right at the end him walking away is the right decision for him it's the right it is totally fitting with his character and if he hadn't walked away it would have been a less uh, like a, a less satisfying movie even though this movie feels like a like like it's anticlimactic like wait like what happened like what what did i just watch but you, you just watched the, the the story of of the law play out mm-hmm. in the best possible scenario it could and the story of grisham because he walked away from the law maybe rudy baylor goes off and writes the firm writes the firm <laughs> and becomes rich anyway right but and... by making but but making really good you know things that are on the right side of history that are like fun and smart but also mean something and i feel maybe that's and you reach more people with uh you know pop culture than you would in some trials so maybe that is the dream that happened to the, the uh, yeah Rudy there's Baylor a character. really fantastic gestalt <laughs> to this film of, and this is one of the things I love about it. And I, I didn't know the Coppola story about the, about the airport, but that totally makes sense. That Coppola, once he's paid off his debts, he just, he reads this thing and he's like, yeah, fuck the insurance companies. Interestingly, his, uh, his peer, <laughs> his new Hollywood peer, uh, Warren Beatty made an anti-insurance company, you know, insurance industry film, Bullworth right around the Mm -hmm. same time that came out in 1998. So uh, luckily for us, Warren Beatty and Francis Ford Coppola and John Grisham took down the insurance industry. And now we have, (laughs) uh, you you notice they made like, uh, there's a scene, there's a part where John Boyd is talking to the jury. He's like, this is gonna lead to government healthcare. Oh my God, that was like, (laughs) I was like, whoa, film. You know, okay, let's tone it down with your, 2022 you know social social justice warrior woke you know all the terms oh man well go go back and watch bullworth if you want to see that when bullworth is like <laughs> say that dirty word also, socialism like, like that's the worst thing that is why you 12 people have to decide that the insurance company wins because if not then we'll have fully we'll have fully funded free government health care <laughs> Isn't that the worst what thing that could happen? <laughs> Will be just like all the other major developed countries in the world. <laughs> I think a good way, another good way to go through this movie is to talk about all the really awesome people in it. And yeah. let's start with the most awesome, fucking Mickey Rourke. Well, let's let's yes. get there. Who is please? He is so. The moment he appears on screen, you're like, God damn it. Why aren't you in more movies? Why weren't you in more movies then? Being as awesome as you are. Perfect casting. Perfect casting. When I read in the book, and he's a shady lawyer, and he has an aquarium of tiny sharks behind him, this is Mickey Rourke. (laughs) And how do you not? Like, you are fucking stupid if you do not cast Mickey Rourke in this role. And not only is it a great image, but he fucking kills it. Yeah, like, he's great. It's a total bring back from Rumblefish. It, yeah. With the fish, yeah. With the, with the fish, fish. yeah. And yeah. it starts, and I love it. It starts off when they show, like, it's all good, but when they just show the title of the Rainmaker and the fish swimming through the title, I'm like, okay, we're in a Coppola film now. This is a total <laughs> yeah. Coppola flourish, like out of Dracula and out of Rumblefish, and there's Mickey yeah. Rourke, 
And I've never, t- I've told this story uh, probably on our podcast, but I haven't told the story on, I, I haven't been on this podcast, but I, I have a great story about Mickey Rourke and the casting of him in Rumblefish, which is that when I was a young actor, I got to meet someone who was a casting assistant, who was then a casting director, but was a casting assistant on that film. And she was telling me, I saw the poster in her office. I was like, you got to tell me about the casting of that film. She's like, oh, yeah, everyone in town was up for The Outsiders. Sean Penn was up for it. Uh, Like every young actor you could think was up for it. And a lot of them didn't get in. And there was one guy that Coppola met who we tried to get in the movie over and over again. It was Mickey Rourke. He just tried to get Mickey Rourke in the movie over and over and over and over and over again. And then... He finally realized that there's just no way to put him in this movie, but he'd be great in Rumblefish, and that's why they rolled out into Rumblefish right out of uh, The Outsiders because he wanted to work with Mickey Rourke so bad. And watching this movie, I was thinking, God, I wish they did that with this. That, like, we also got a little black-and-white bruiser movie (laughs) (laughs) because he's so fucking great in it. and. Just, but he's just a little. He's just a little bit of blood in the water because we're really going to be looking at Devito and and Damon for the rest of the time. <laughs> yeah, uh, but it, it's this... great because uh, he is right. He's shady and he's being investigated by the FBI and the uh, Justice Department for shady dealings. And it turns out that he's been skimming him and his partner, uh, who owns the bar, have been skimming off the top of the bar and their other businesses. And uh, and they get away. He gets away to uh, the Bahamas or some Caribbean island, and he's living the you know the good uh, exile life. If you're going to be an exile, be an exile like Mickey Rourke. It turns out that Roy Scheider, head uh, CEO of Great Benefit or whatever the parent company is of that, has also been skimming the money off of <laughs> mm-hmm. the insurance company for personal benefit. <laughs> and in this movie, like you know the best of all possible worlds he gets caught he gets caught and he <laughs> he he has to face consequences with it and it's like hey like who would i rather see you know get their comeuppance a guy that's skimming money off of his own bar or someone that is skimming money off of his insurance company so that <laughs> by not paying money to people so they can get life-saving <laughs> treatment but isn't it great if you're to be francis ford coppola and to be able to get Mickey Rourke and Roy Scheider to play kind of nothing roles, like super yeah. important. But, but bring so much to those nothing roles. God, you know, like, like Roy Scheider so is so fantastic much. in this movie yeah. when we get to it. But let's stay with Mickey Rourke because what all I when I think of when I think of Mickey Rourke in this movie, all I think of him is saying, getting up from the table and saying, enjoy the meat. <laughs> walking off it's uh, i can't even and, th- and this was like in the and this was in the middle of sort of like his sort of no man's land part of his yeah. career where he's sort of like in movies where he's still good like uh around not this, this time charisma is, uh like yeah. around this time you have buffalo 66 you have uh animal factory uh the the pledge was a three years after this so he's in things where he's still really good but it like it wasn't until kind of Sin City, the wrestler in the mid aughts when people were like, Oh fuck, Mickey Rourke is back. But like he's just he's such a star. Like in this, he's fucking James Dean. Like he is so mm-hmm. just like charismatic 
And like, I wish there was more. And like, you're right. I wish there was a better call Saul type show about this character. Yeah. Like, Him, like, you know, like, in, like no, in the Bahamas. Like, yeah. Like, don't make it in 1997 when TV wasn't great. But like, if you made this show now with Mickey, if Mickey Rourke could look the way he did then now and make the TV show now, how TV shows are made now, that would be amazing about this guy who runs his corrupt, you know, like law firm out of this. Yeah, he'd be. It would be like, it'd be sort of like a modern Deadwood with him as the swear engine Ian McShane kind yeah. of character. Yeah, and like, and it, what's great is like he's clearly you know kind of creepy and does shady dealings, but the people working for him, like Matt Damon, is able to do good within this bullshit yeah. law firm. Yeah, and it's, it's it's and he's just so cool and he looks great and it just yeah I like I just the whole time watch I just wish there was more Mickey Rourke which I know doesn't make sense for the plot of this movie but every time he's on screen oh, but when I'm he comes like, back oh, when drooling. they bring him back you're like, so happy right when he's in and, like the Bahamas or wherever yeah. and hiding yes now. and that <laughs> is that is that is Coppola that is not in the novel it's purely yeah. added for for the for the movie from Coppola because. In the novel, one of the great things Grisham does, and because it's a novel and he has all you know the pages he wants to work with, uh, what he does is the original judge of the case, who is also like corrupt and is like, this is a frivolous lawsuit and I'm going to throw it out, played by Dean Stockwell in the movie for like one great scene. <laughs> and then so he good. dies. Ugh. And then is replaced by this young, black, liberal you know, righteous judge played by Danny Glover. Uncredited and... Danny Glover. He's not credited I know. I know. in this movie. No, he is amazing. But that's great. That like that's right. the power of a Grisham and a Coppola where Danny Glover's like, I'll give a great performance and you don't even need to well, credit Well, no, me. no, I'll I'm sure. No, I bet, you know, <laughs> usually when it's not credited, it's because the actor is like, if you're not going to put me above, if you're not going to put me with these people, you're not don't put me in it like they it's it's an, it's something that happens after the fact i've uh i've had that's the only reason to do an uncredited in such a big role i mean i'm sure that it was like he was like i should be it should be matt damon danny Third devito bill. and danny like somewhere <laughs> in the negotiation his name should have been above somebody his name should have been above john voight and he's like, if my name's not above John Voight, then don't. Then his agents are like, well, then you I can't like use to it. take the uh, optimistic idea. Um, and Danny Glover, we'll talk <laughs> about him real quick, was like that with his time as a judge. He was up there, you know, in his judge's box the whole time. And Danny Glover was like, I'll be here, even if the camera's not on me. So, you know, for for the full effect, so the other actors get the get the full effect. He's great. He's a total he Deus Ex machina, machina or Machina or what? Basically, you know, the real movie of this, Dean Stockwell is alive for the whole film in the real <laughs> world. Yeah, in the real world, yes. That's the Grishamizing, <laughs> the like the thing, that's the movie, <laughs> that is the one thing in the movie that is like, we need this for this movie to work, but it's full, it's full on Capricorn. In, in the novel that, the Danny Glover character is kind of guiding him through the whole process or at least like making making everything fair the the, the the tension that comes from the novel is like what's this is too easy it's too easy what's going to happen and Coppola wrote the screenplay and then realized like this isn't really like cinematic so then he rewrote all the courtroom stuff which did not please Matt Damon or John Voight. 
to make it so that Rudy is like fumbling through his first case, which makes sense narratively totally. because it's his first case and it is a huge case. And it is and totally so, cinematic. Yeah, and, and you it's, give it's, it's, it's he gets some good slapstick in there. He's dropping things, he's tripping over stuff, you know. And those those were those were the mistakes that like someone made. And he's like, okay, do that again. Drop the thing again, and I'm gonna <laughs> keep it in. And in that way, his direction is kind of like his buddy George Lucas, who would do like a million takes, not giving the actors any further direction until they made a mistake, like Richard Dreyfus catching the bottle of liquor in American Graffiti. 50 times and the 51st time he almost drops it and cope and lucas says that's it print it all right next scene uh, and so by making him fumble it allows for this great scene where not only do we get to show uh, bring back mickey rourke but uh deck danny devito gets to show off his mm-hmm. practical knowledge of the law and he's like wait it's about stolen evidence well, Bruiser dealt with stolen evidence all the time. So he looks through the old cases. He contacts Bruiser in the Bahamas, and he gets that wonderful <laughs> shot. Like, I need to talk to Big Rhino. And then someone patches him through to Big Rhino. It's Mickey Rourke in, you know, beautiful beach setting. He's like, mm-hmm, what? Yeah, stolen evidence? Okay. Like, What's the line? Right, here's he's, what... like, he's like, are you here? He's like, I'm, he's like, I'm here. I'm around. <laughs> oh, around. So, and then Bruiser helps him, you know, from from beyond, from exile. It's a wonderful scene, and it's so it's that whole it's that drama. like that Frank Capra, yeah. it's that Frank Capra thing of like because you were a because you are a good person, the people you were good to are now going to help you. And so you were good, you were good to Bruiser, you were good to Deck. And so Deck is now going to, you know, make a phone call. Help, my, my friend George Bailey needs help. And then help comes. And it brings <laughs> forth this precedent that allows the evidence that by, you know, technicality got thrown out. It allows the evidence back in. And that's the evidence that wins, uh, that helps win, win the case. Oh, man. And it's great. Uh, yeah. This is greatly constructed. And it's, it, this is like going back to time to kill. This is why this is so much like why like Coppola is a better filmmaker than Schumacher and why even though Matthew McConaughey has so much charisma and he gets to give the big moving speech, Matt Damon is so much more effective as a guy who doesn't yeah. even feel like when he, he gets up at the end, no it's confidence, like, he's really. like, I don't even yeah. feel I don't like I'm ashamed of myself. I don't even feel I don't feel like I should give my own spe- closing speech. I'm going to let my client do that. Like that kind of humility, like the Damon can play that and didn't want to. Yeah. I bet Damon, of course, wanted to have the big scene where he's like, and my client is imagine he's white or whatever, like whatever, like have that. And Coppola is like, no, that's not dramatic. What's dramatic is watching someone who wants to do the right thing, who can't do the right thing and is heroic to admit is heroic enough to admit yeah. that he can't do the right thing. And so he's just going to trust the fucking law, which in this movie is the thing, is the holy thing <laughs> that is totally corrupt, but one good person is going to make a difference because the law. 
exists. It's so fucking, it's so, you're right, Capra, it's the best, like, I don't know another film, modern film, that gets the best part of the Capra thing right. Yeah, because when people try to intentionally do Capra, like that, Jim Carrey movie theater movie, the majestic, oh, the majestic. Yep. Yeah. they get it all wrong. And it just feels cornball. It just doesn't, it doesn't work. Whereas when you watch a Capra movie, you really believe in the message and all it. of his movie. You believe in it's a wonderful life. You believe in the you know, Mr. Deeds goes to town, but yeah, I think you're right. I think the rainmaker is the closest we get to a modern, I guess not modern anymore. Cause this movie's now 30 years old. Cause we're old, but <laughs> took to a Capra movie. It has that, like it's the right, morales it's the right it's just the message and it works it's effective you feel it you don't you don't think like oh this is stupid this is silly this is so forced this is so obvious it is obvious but this but it works because of all the people the one actor that i thought stood out other than mickey like everyone's great in this movie but just that little part with Virginia Madsen. Is oh my so God. Good. Yes. Jackie oh, she is, is my hero. I love her. She is so good. And again, like at the time she was in Candyman. She's in things, but this is like sideways was sort of when everyone was like, Oh, she's amazing. She's always been amazing. And like this movie is evidence of that, that, that just a part, it's just one or two scenes, but she's so good. Oh, and just God. And like that. And that part is so painful. Cause like, it seems like she's like, She's really giving it her all and she's helping. And then you find out kind of how it's, it's a little muckier because uh, she slept with uh, somebody at the at the law firm. Lufkin, it's like a whole. Like, like a it, really cool. Well, she it, didn't sleep with. She was, it, yeah, she was sexually or harassed. Or she was sexually harassed. And, and, but like her performance, she just kind of gives a deposition and is out of the movie. But it's so powerful and it's so good. Um, uh, she's amazing. In. Yeah, she she's the key evidence and she's the key to Coppola realized that like uh, her uh, her testimony is so like powerful to the case that that this has to be where Matt Damon screws it up and the audience will think like oh no the yep. case is lost and that's mm -hmm. where because of a technicality Danny De or not Danny DeVito Danny Glover has to you know disqualify the um, the insurance company manual that says like oh deny all claims no matter what so we can make more money and uh, and see if anyone sues us uh but yeah, she she's she's so good, and she she's like like barely hinted at, and then her character just comes in, she delivers delivers this powerful performance, and then she leaves the movie. But she affects the whole course of the movie. It's uh, it's great, and you know Coppola, one of the techniques he used, uh, which, uh, you know we 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 can get into it is right before uh, they shot the scene where she's on the stand he decided we're gonna have we're gonna improv scenes which is something he had been doing with the actors throughout the whole movie but we're gonna improv the scene where she's confronted by all the male uh, scumbags at the insurance company and forced to sign her resignation in this paper saying that she won't uh, tell about all the shady stuff they're doing and in the making of, you can see where all these guys in suits, they sit her down in something like, you know, some some set that's not actually an insurance company set and like go at her and tell her, you have to sign this and like, wait, where are you going? <laughs> like, sit back down. And then right after that is wow. when they shot her scenes on the stand. And she didn't 
know they were going to improv that. There's some kind of, uh, you know, like questionable stuff where Coppola like, well, she has to cry in this scene, so we need to be like, I I have to like be mean to her. Well, supposedly to to he cry. had all the people pinch her, like not like in an inappropriate body part way, but I guess. He said something. I think I said heard something like he had all the people that were in the insurance company like, give her like a hard pinch, like right before she had to kiss, like all these dudes. And then, <laughs> and I guess, I guess like speaking of that too, like when the scene, the great scene when Matt Damon goes into the big corporate office of the of the insurance company, supposedly Coppola had him wear sharp rocks in his shoes. Yeah, to give yeah, him this uncomfortable, like you are going to be so uncomfortable against these people. So I'm going to make you physically uncomfortable. And that's just like, I feel like why this movie is so good and why this movie is in a way comparable to The Godfather. It's like it taps into like what Coppola is so good at, which is like working with the actors and you hear the stories with The Godfather and you see a glimpse of it in that bullshit miniseries of just like he likes to go out and eat with them and he likes to play with them he likes to have these ideas and do this improv and do we're going to have lunch and we're going to play on these characters and doing the stuff that I think a lot of directors don't tend to do anymore or at all and like this and that I think that's how you get a lot of really interesting performances from these people in this movie um, that he is an actor's director. Like that's what makes him so great is like when he does it well, when he does it right. And when he trusts a movie like this or apocalypse now or the Godfather, where it's not so much about plot and it's more about character. And I think Peggy Sue got married and the outsiders and rumble are definitely like that too. When you're just hanging out with the actors and the people, that's when he really shines as a filmmaker. I think when he's trying to do too much of a plot or something, maybe it doesn't work as well, even though he doesn't do that often. But like this, like that is sort of the couple of touch for me in this movie is that like you are going to get a good performance from everybody in this movie, every single person, even if you're on screen for a scene, even if you're Dean Stockwell in a moment, like you are like a Randy Travis, <laughs> <laughs> you know? like seriously, you're going to get a good performance out of these people. They're going to bring it because they're working for Coppola, but also he knows how to bring it out of these people. And as an actor myself, I can say that there is directing is a potentially abusive situation. The direct, the relationship between an actor, a director and actors, because actors are playing out the word. Like there aren't many movies about situations in which the characters are having a great time. <laughs> you know, it's, if it is, it's setting up a situation where they're having a bad time and bad things are happening to them and they have to react genuinely to them. Jackie Lemanchik's mm -hmm. story is heartbreaking. What happened to her is heartbreaking. She, by the time she's making this movie, she is a very professional actor in this. And I have to imagine that whatever manipulations, and again, I'm speaking as an actor, as an actor being manipulated by someone who I know has my best interest. This is why the why actors talk about the trust with the director is because if you trust the director to have really have your best interest to never make you look bad that whatever they're doing is to help you get to the point where you can do what the Jack, Jackie LaMancha character does in this film which is break your fucking heart and leave you just like like you imagine yourself as the jury with your heart going out to her and hating this company and if whatever he had to do 
to create that vibe as long as she's okay. And I have to imagine that even if she was made uncomfortable by it, when she looks at it, this has to be in the pantheon of her top three performances as an actor, top five. I don't know. Slam dance is, is, is fucking great. We did an episode about the hotspot on, on the world is wrong. I think that's her great. That's her great, 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 greatest performance. Uh, but this is right there. And I think in general, she's just a very underrated actress. I think she's not spoken about in the same way that she should be with other people that get maybe even more praise than she does. I think she is a very underrated performer and is so good in this movie. Yeah, that, um, when, you know, when she finally got the uh, uh, attention from, from Sideways, Oscar nominated Sideways, that was like the moment where, like the high school moment where, uh, you know, someone like the coolest person said like oh like well i always thought she was cool and everyone else had to be like oh yeah well me too me too, me too. oh yeah 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 of course well, i she's thought always she was cool great. in class yeah like oh i thought she's always been great well but here's the thing she always has been you just haven't really paid you weren't paying attention about yeah couple of new 2003 <laughs> and you know what I want to like do a little bit of a sidebar because there's some there's another I feel like influence for Coppola and Grisham that is sort of a connecting point, and it's it, it uh, and I feel like the talk about Virginia Madsen ties into it. Are you fans of the filmmaker Stanley Kramer, or have you watched many of his films? I've seen some of them. Um, because I because I, I think he made two of the great early courtroom dramas that feel like what makes Grisham's films the best uh, Inherit the Wind from 1960 about the Scopes trial uh, with it. Spencer Tracy and then Judgment at Nuremberg the next year which I, is I think one of the great courtroom dramas which is all about the denazification trials after uh, that the allied forces and mostly the, the United States ran in Germany holding the German generals and high command accountable or not, as the case may be. And it is a fantastic film. And one of the things that makes it so amazing are two scenes where uh, one with Judy Garland and one with Montgomery Clift, where they are victims of the Nazis who come and tell these stories. And it's very much like the Jackie Lemanchik scene where they have one scene, they come in, they carry so much water for the film because they carry the emotional thing. They're telling an emotional real world story that is not the story, but is tangential to the story and amplifies the, spe the specificity of what is so evil about in Judgment at Nuremberg, it's the Nazis in the Rainmaker, it's the evil uh, insurance companies. And there's something, I don't know, I, there's a part of me that just wants to like lead off into a whole Stanley Kramer podcast. But I feel like there's something <laughs> about that Stanley Kramer, a lot of his films, he did Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, he did uh, On the Beach, he did The Defiant Ones. There's this sort of, uh, I don't know, proud about the best aspects or uh, of America, sort of like maybe he's the bridge between Capra and Grisham. <clears throat> yeah, I could see that. 
And he did It's a Mad, 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 Mad World, which is the only comedy he did, I think, <laughs> really. And, if you're going to uh, do only one comedy. If you're going to, like, like if you're weighed down with Nuremberg. I think Guess and, Who's and Coming to Dinner stuff, is you gotta, you got to make, like, the biggest slapstick comedy of all time just to, like, have a breather for a second. You got to work with Jonathan Winters for a year before you can dive back into serious things. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's, it's just really crazy to me that, like, we're talking about Capra and Kramer and, like, rightfully so. And it's just crazy to me that this movie isn't considered one of Coppola's best when it clearly is. Yeah. And it clearly is a Coppola movie. Like it, like you mentioned early on that this is the most similar to the Godfather than anything else he's done. I maybe agree. Like it has, because like what's great when Coppola I feel is the best is when he is sort of letting the material work for itself and he's not trying to force a style on it. Like this movie is not overtly stylish. It's not very showy in its terms of direction. It just is really good performances, a really good script, which he wrote. And it's just characters in the world. It's about the world and the characters. And I think that's what makes the Godfather, all three Godfather movies great and Apocalypse Now and the conversation is it feels like a very lived in world. And you're very much like jumping in with these characters and you're just hanging out in this world for a duration of time. I mean, not to mention this movie also has a lot of dark offices, which feels very also uh, the outsiders and Rumblefish. You got to throw that in there because the same. Yeah, no, those too. Yeah, where it's just about hanging out. It's hanging out with characters. It's about just being in a world. It's a world building thing, and this movie does it so well. Like I really feel like this, and just like The Godfather, it has something to say about America. It has something to say about the human condition, but Mm -hmm. is also deeply entertaining which is a very hard thing to pull off, which he's been able to do time and time again. And he did it here. And it's insane that, you know, many years later, people still aren't talking about this movie. I think people stupidly group it in with, you know, thinking it's like, ah, then he had to make a bunch of movies to make money. He already had his money by this point. He paid off the zoetrope failure by this point. You know, this isn't Jack. And even though we like Jack, like I can see why people hate Jack. Great. But like, this movie is legit good and it's stupid that it was up for no Oscars, no real awards. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, doesn't make really, yeah. Any se- it doesn't make any sense at all. <laughs> uh, like it was up for uh, good on the uh, Blockbuster Entertainment Awards for nominating <laughs> it for Best Actor, Supporting Actor DeVito, Supporting Actress Claire Danes. The Dallas Fort Worth Film Critics Association nominated for Best Picture. Jeez. Golden. Uh, Golden Globes gave it a uh, supporting actor for John Voight. That's it. Uh, though he's great at it. Uh, the NAACP nominated Danny Glover su- for supporting actor. The Las Vegas Film Critics Society Awards Most Promising Actor nominee. Winner, Matt Damon. It won at the Las Vegas Film Critics Society Awards. And they then uh, right. I think the one, the one that really stood out that actually was right, like the National Board of Review gave this the top t- it's in the top 10 for the national border review for 97 so they were the only real prestigious group of critics that it, 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 it acknowledged that this movie is great and it like this is one of the best like 97 is a pretty darn good year for movies mm-hmm. you know you had boogie nights that year you had jackie brown that year like 97 is a good year for movies and this is definitely one of the best and it's just crazy to me that that is not mirrored by most people like I was shocked when I watched this, how good it was, because I assumed it would be meh. Yeah. Because I never heard anyone talk about it. I never. I mean, I thought, like I it's so not too. it's talked about, and I was like, I was like, oh, I heard. I think it'll be fine. It'll be entertaining. But this is a good, 
This is like what a Hollywood movie is supposed to be. Yep. But is not. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I have to imagine because it was such a different kind of novel uh, for from Grisham as opposed to like the, the, the thrillers of uh, you know, the, the, the client and, and the firm because it was this uh, uh, like strangely specific and character-based a uh, character-based novel that that's what Coppola connected with that's why he wanted to make it into a movie I have to imagine if it was like you know the firm part two that we wouldn't have a movie we wouldn't have a movie from <laughs> Coppola based on John Grisham to talk about but because this is so uh based in characters and because it is taking on you know an important thing like the insurance company and then it has this strange anti-climax that really reminded me of the conversation that has this that it has this ultimate anti-climax where the protagonist ends up doing nothing and it totally makes sense in the movie and because of that it is satisfying like that's yeah. why we have this this uh this story as a movie at all um yeah, this is the, like I feel like only Francis Ford Coppola could have made this movie this way. You're like, yes, there are changes from the original story, but I feel like if someone else had made this movie, it would have been changed even more to make it more like a thriller, or there would have been more of a romance between uh, Matt Damon and Claire Danes, which is already kind of pushing it. Yeah. Yeah, for the romance that is in the movie, but it works. It really because because it totally works. Yeah, it it, to, it it works because honestly, because Matt Damon carries, and at that time, really, particularly at that time, carries an inherent integrity like the like uh, Gary Cooper or Jimmy Stewart did in the Capra films that they just we believe that he is not trying to fuck Claire Danes. We believe that he is drawn to protect her and he is a good man who she falls for, like that they genuinely fall for each other because they are genuinely good people. And that happens too fast for a normal movie, but Coppola is making that kind of a Capra, Stanley Kramer film that like, as you said, Brian, that we believe in. We believe in it. You believe and, in it. And I wanted, yeah. I, there, there, I correct me, I, I can't remember the exact conversation, but there was a conversation in an earlier episode of the podcast, which I listen to regularly. Love it. Uh, <laughs> you were trying to say, like, what kind of a filmmaker is, what is uh, Coppola's style? What is it that makes a film a Coppola film? Yeah. And I've been thinking about that. And to me, it is the, and I think it is the most difficult, sort of ineffable quality, but it is, he is a zeitgeist filmmaker. This film captures a, it's part of what it takes to launch, to find a Pacino and to find a Matt Damon. The casting is a huge part of it, is that the right actor, sort of unleashed mm -hmm. at the center of your film, creates this like if you're a sensitive director and writer to it 
as, as Coppola is able to be, he can be so flexible that he can just improv with what he has. And so, like, Outsiders and Rumblefish, total zeitgeisty, even though at the time people didn't know it, didn't couldn't see it. Rain, Rainmaker is totally zeitgeisty in terms of what yeah. you're saying. The ideas it's capturing are now sort of prevalent ideas, and Matt Damon is an institution, whereas he was just Matty Damon then. You know... <laughs> Oh, Apocalypse Now is an intentionally zeitgeisty movie. Godfather is an accidentally zeitgeisty movie. He, <laughs> what he does is he is able to capture the spirit of the moment in which he's making a film. Even though people don't will probably not like it, Jack is zeitgeisty as fuck in terms of capturing the spirit of the tragedy of, uh, of Robin Williams and yeah. the tragedy of Bill Cosby. He is, he, like, he <laughs> yeah. went to, I feel like he went to school with Jim Morrison and the same qualities <laughs> that drove the doors dro drive Coppola as a filmmaker. That he is, there's something shamanic about what he's doing and his best films capture the moment. Like there's, you can't get more 19, like the best of the 1990s than the rainmaker including matt damon being involved including mickey like all the people in it are also part of it claire danes is hugely zeitgeisty he like he yeah. his sense of if he was a musician you'd call it a sense of timing it's he just brings it and that uh, that brings out the best in people and yeah so i anyway i've been thinking about that a lot since i listened to that episode that's the that's his style zeitgeisty and I don't think there's. I feel, many I feel you're right. Who, who can do that? Well, it's hard to do. Yeah, it's, it's hard to do. Well, you also it's hard have to, to do be it. huge at your on your first f film and become and wear the mantle that allows people to treat you like that. John Lennon was zeitgeisty, you know. But he's also zeitgeisty and not dated because some zeitgeisty things feel like once it moves past it, you're like, well, I don't know what this means anymore, you know, because it's not 1997. Well, that's because he's but a genuine like... artist. If you're a genuine artist, yeah. then it's going <laughs> to yeah. be genuine. He doesn't do, he doesn't do, yeah. find a fake moment in one of his movies. There's boring, yeah. there's bad, there's things you might, may not like, but there is not, not a phony. fake yeah. moment in anything he's ever done. Yeah. yeah I, I could be mistaken, but I'm pretty sure that, you know, John Voigt's closing argument line about like this, if you rule against the insurance company, it will lead to, you know, uh, universal <laughs> government health care. I'm pretty sure that is not in the novel. <laughs> so Coppola knew. Coppola added that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he and Warren Beatty were thinking this. Uh, Warren Beatty's also can can be a very zeitgeisty filmmaker. You know, they. It's a. I think it's a very yeah. old Hollywood thing because it's like you have to be relaxed while working with a sixty million dollar budget. Or a forty million dollar budget on this thing, <laughs> or whatever, yeah. and you just can't afford to do that now. And like, even then, it would be like for Coppola or Warren Beatty, sixty million dollars is a small budget at that point, a medium budget. It's enough to get the job done. That world doesn't even exist anymore. Yeah, who gets to make yeah. a sixty million dollar movie about a book they picked up that is not like? Yeah, that's like some Kubrick shit. You know, like that's something that yeah. Stanley Kubrick would have done. Super zeitgeist. Uh, also. Funny enough, Michael Hare, who wrote the narration for this movie, also wrote the narration 
for Apocalypse Now wrote the script for Apocalypse Now or for Full Metal Jacket. So uh, oh, there you go. <laughs> I I feel like and uh, if you know if um, we're gonna ding the movie, one of the flaws I felt was I don't think his narration quite works in this movie the way the narration works in uh you know apocalypse now or full metal jacket i mean comparing rainmaker the apocalypse now full metal jacket is its own thing but uh i just felt a lot of narration just i it just didn't work for me there was one stretch where he matt damon is saying that like he's ashamed to live in a country that has like the best medical technology yet this boy is, is, is Donnie Ray Black is dying because of insurance companies. And I thought that was going to fade into his, like, you know, him like writing a, a draft of his closing argument, but it, <laughs> but it doesn't, you know, I, the narration's fine. I like the narration in this movie. I think it totally works. I like the narration uh, at the very beginning and at the very end, because it ends with, it ends with narration, you know, with him laying out his plans that he's going to quit the law and that, uh, mm-hmm. you know, like, what's, like, uh, deck is going to be okay. I forgot what specific thing he gets, but, like, ah, like, he'll be fine. And, like, <laughs> you gotta, he has to quit the law now, because if he doesn't, he might cross that line. And if he crosses that line enough times, he won't even know he's done it. And then you're just another lawyer joke, another uh, shark swimming in, in dirty waters, and this is like talk about zeitgeisty this like it brings back that rumble fish mickey rourke shark and the thing it also coppola is also giving us the john grisham story that john grisham walked away he is like he it like that's the zeitgeistiness of it if you want the full grisham feeling this is the movie for it the best grisham movie i still think is the is runaway jury because i think it is even it's like even more pointed, but this is the best, like the most Grisham feeling. Because again, Coppola mm. went to Memphis and hung out with him. I'm sure <laughs> he sees uh, Damon as an analog for Grisham because Gr- Grisham sees all of his lawyer characters as an analog for himself. Which is why, again, why I, again I go against the I, I stand against the gingerbread man. Because it doesn't feel like an analog. It feels like it feels like John Grisham said something to Robert Altman at a party after Robert Altman gave him some really powerful weed. And then <laughs> Robert Altman turned that into a film pitch and offered him a bunch of money to like put his name on it. But it's not it's like it, it's not in the I'm Grisham still gonna movie. watch that movie someday. You should see it. <laughs> I have to. I just. I'm curious. I would recommend watching any Naomi Judd thriller over it because I think they're all better. (laughs) But it's that it's that kind of movie. Um, But it's not. It it it's the the Robert Altman thing is a red herring because it makes you think it's going to be the best one. Yeah, and it's not. But it's the worst one. Oh, Um, cool, Ryan. While we're talking about complaints, I know you had a complaint about the the soundtrack. So so the one thing, the one thing I don't care about this movie is the soundtrack by Elmer Bernstein. It's fine. He's a hack. It's not right. You hate Elmer Bernstein. No, he's not a hack. He's one of the great. You know, the Trading Places uh, soundtrack is great. I think he did Ghostbusters, like many classics. Trading Places. That he is. uh, 
but there's like there's weird music cues. The scene in uh, Gene Stockwell's office with John Voight, it gets really goofy and it's really weird, and I don't understand it. Why the music is the way it is? It makes it seem like a sillier movie. It is in that part, and it's really ill-fitting. And the part when Rourke is on vacation and they call him on the phone, the music there is very odd and doesn't work. And I feel that's like the half star that doesn't quite make this the masterpiece is the music is very odd, very strange. <laughs> like it doesn't quite work. I get they're trying to do maybe a Memphis Stax Records, Booker T, you know, like yeah, like jazzy sort of thing. And it works when it works, but when it doesn't work, it feels very odd and doesn't work for me. Um well, I think, that, part of- I think that the Dean Stockwell scene is supposed is played for comedy. The, that's but, supposed but the to be music a funny makes scene. it seem extra goofy, and it's just weird that, to me. That part is like, like I like that part, but the music makes it is like, what is the music doing here? Why is it doing this? I don't understand. I feel like um, it's. It, I I feel like it's his. It, that's Matt Damon's character being like, they got me on a merry-go-round. <laughs> This is, and then this my is other the complaint carnival. is they have uh, they, at the end of the movie, they have pizza at the end of the movie and they show the pizza box. And clearly the pizza is bigger than the pizza box. So the proper department bought the wrong size pizza box. And Coppola should know better about a good pizza size box being an Italian American. That's all I'm saying. No Dean Tavolaris paying attention. Oh. To the if it was design. Dean Tavolaris, they would have got the right size pizza yes. box. Yes. OK, you found it. I don't agree with you about this, the music, but you nailed but it. But did Brian. you notice that? No, did you that's notice that? you. That is oh, your genius as a food comedian. Me being obs- a food obsessive. Just yeah. it's a small pizza. They because they show the whole pizza in the box. It's too tiny. It doesn't make sense. That is what uh, I count on you but, for, Brian. As a food I can't wait to do a remake of my dinner with Andre and really obsess over the food that they're eating. I'm going to make it the more food focused version. <laughs> Because I live for it. It's all shots of food I, I, with the voice. Why, why am I obsessed with food? I don't know. But this is just my life as a man who enjoys a good pizza. And, a good, and like, like those are the best parts of that terrible uh, Godfather miniseries was a couple uh, yep. fighting mm-hmm. over with Mariputa who ate the who ate ham the sandwich. I wouldn't. I would not say. I would not. It just. It just. A couple of beads so obsessed with detail, like when you see the scene in Hearts of Darkness, we talk about the details of the meal and in, in, in Apocalypse Now. You think he would have noticed the wrong size pizza box? That's all I'm saying, and that's a half star for me. Just you know, couple of, for whatever reason, too, that's. <laughs> I bet he was too distracted by this. Uh, by this movable ceiling that was made for the courtroom scenes. Oh what. So the ceiling, what he wanted to do in a different way was like in 12 Angry Men, what Sidney Lamette does as the uh, deliberation goes on is he starts out with wide shots. And so the room is like nice and roomy. And then as the film goes on, it's tighter and tighter until the very end when it's only close-ups and it's like canted angles up showing the ceiling. So it feels like very claustrophobic and tight and very tense. And he wanted to recreate something like that. So what he did was he ordered, like he had an idea, like we we will build the courtroom set with a ceiling that can adjust so that I can lower it down for when I want the scene to be tense <laughs> and the ceiling will be low and it'll feel like everything's That's closing in on Rudy. Amazing. And when it's, uh, when it's, uh, you know, like when he's doing good, when Rudy's doing good and John Voight is, uh, is on the ropes, then the ceiling will be high. And that is in the movie. But Coppola thought like, like, oh, you just push a button and then it moves down and then back up. But really, it's like 
this is going to take three hours. We have to move out all the lights. <laughs> we have to redo the wiring. We have to move it. We have to put back the lights. It's going it. to take a long time. And Coppola talks about that a lot in the commentary. <laughs> he says, like, oh, because, like, uh, because I spent so much time with <laughs> – with, with the, the movable ceiling that costs so much money it. and so much time i, I i've got to keep Gosh, talking about like, it like yeah don't you wish directors gave a shit about ceilings again like th- like that kind of director and the thing i is, feel like, lost like I, like I love that like and like you don't notice it when you watch it but clearly it's subconsciously affecting something absolutely but like, that's the yes. kind of director style that you want you don't want it in your face I'm showing off my style, but it's like you are gonna build this insane ceiling thing. Like that's some Orson Welles shit. That's great, Stanley like Kubrick. That, I wish yeah. to stand that some Stanley Kubrick shit. Like they're just doing all this work for weird things that make mean something to you, and it is there on the screen, but it's not obvious because you're an actual good artist who's not trying to be show off, and you're just making the best, most masterful film possible. The Rainmaker. There's something if you're obsessing about something that like you know every director like if he was obsessing with style you say this film doesn't have the Dracula like I feel like the most stylish thing is when the Rainmaker title comes up and the fish <laughs> with the fish it <laughs> yeah. behind Mickey Rourke and it's like this one flourish that's like that like the Rumblefish or the Outsiders mm-hmm. or all these yeah and there's something like if he's obsessing about this this ceiling that really doesn't play much of a role in it. And it allows him to get out of the way and just be instinctive about the rest of it. I think about like when I, as a musician, when I, uh, when I go into making a record, the song that I most want to make right is usually the one that is overproduced and sounds like shit. But because I'm so focused <laughs> on that one, all the other ones come out pretty okay because I'm not <laughs> messing with it. And I feel like this film is him not messing with it. I am watching, like it's on, it's on the background while we're, while we're talking. And this, there's a scene where the first time that Danny Glover comes on to the case, they have a little hearing with John Voight and his team of lawyers and Rudy Baylor by himself. And just the way that scene is framed and it's just, it's so elegant and simple. There's no, there's none of the exciting stuff that's in Dracula. And I love that it's because he was obsessed with this stupid ceiling. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think it had any effect on the movie. Like I did not, that did not. Maybe it did, he didn't know. I think it's a subconscious thing. Maybe, or maybe it's just that he was so obsessed with that, like, like you feel like he a, like wanna... listening to your podcast, it seems like a lot of his movies, like with one from the heart, like I'm gonna direct it without being, I'm gonna be in a in a truck far away while this is being made or what. Like he's always got something that he's doing that is so esoteric and filmy, but really <laughs> doesn't affect. It's like the sh- it's like the song you focus on too much because like if I I know I'm gonna be obsessive about something I want to have it be something that is not gonna fuck with all the rest of the stuff I don't know maybe I'm wrong you guys know Coppola better <laughs> well, than me well uh, you being Andras you say like being obsessed with a song about one song and then it turns out the other songs you didn't think about were better uh, describes of my my screenwriting one and two classes in college. 
actually love the brilliance you know of the thing I stayed up all night working on? <laughs> no. <laughs> you know, overthinking no. a thing is definitely a thing. You know, it's it's good to go with your gut a lot of times. And this <laughs> film is like keeping it simple, but based on all of the things he knows. Like he's doing everything right, but he's not doing anything yeah. showy. Yeah. I agree. And I kind of wish there was more of this. And this is sort of, I think we're kind of at the end of the episode. This is sort of the end of an era for Coppola. I feel after this, we're getting into a different sort of terrain. Yep. This is his, this is his last Hollywood movie. Everything after, unless he makes Robopocalypse or whatever that movie's called. The, the one. But he's making that with all his own money. Megapocalypse. So like uh, the movies that he makes after this are these smaller, intimate, winery, his successful pain for movies with Youth Without Youth, Tetro, and Twixt where he's going back into indie, uh, true indie, like maybe inspired by his daughter Sophia's success in the indie world uh, right before these three. But there's sort of, this is the last Hollywood production, Hollywood studio backing movie from him, and he did a great job. And uh, and so it's just kind of sad that this is sort of the end for this for Coppola, but I'm very excited to get into these weird smaller movies that are kind of truly independent and truly his own thing uh with those next three um but so are we are we done talking about the rainmaker can i wrap this up or do you have more anyone else have any last uh thoughts or aj it's just some some stuff i want to mention about the making of the rainmaker and how uh in the making of and the commentary coppola talks about he wanted to get back to being an amateur at the time of the recording the commentary and producing the DVD, it was 2007 and he was on the set mm. of Youth Without Youth. Yeah. And he's like, that's where I am now. I'm more of an amateur now than the professional, meaning he's doing something because he wants to, not just because he's getting paid to. Yeah. And I feel like that that energy, that, that life that you have when it's like, this is my first movie and I want to show off what I can do is in the rainmaker and it reminded me a lot of the 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 making of of like the rain people and you're a big boy now where he just got like the young cast and he was a young director and it's like we're gonna try this like let's do this and we're gonna there's a parade going on you jump into the parade and we're gonna film it and see how it goes yeah to just see how it goes and doing all these uh, exercises which I mean sound like and are like acting at, like college level acting school exercises where like okay like you two have to be like like you're mad at him so then he has John Voight and Matt Damon go outside and basically fight <laughs> like John Voight just pushes around Matt Damon a lot and they and John Voight is great in this we haven't really mentioned that but he is so good in this movie he like is. he plays he's, a great oh, villain God he's great movie. as the villain he's great yeah. as a villain that you feel like is he's just like the rich lawyer who is like I'm hired to defend this insurance company like whatever it doesn't mean anything to me like I'm fine I'll take the money that's fine he's what Matt Damon could have been if he kept practicing law you know yeah. like maybe he believed in something but then he became some corporate shill sort of lawyer you know and in the in the world of Grisham films that that role 
whether it's Gene Hackman in Runaway Jury or it's Tommy Lee Jones in The Client or it's Kevin Spacey in A Time to Kill, that corporate bad guy role in the Grisham universe is, you know, it's that's that's the role you want that is primo (laughs) fucking real estate for your like if you're not going to be the young guy you're not going to be mcconaughey cruz or matt damon which most of us aren't then but once you get that guy then you go to gene hack you go to the great actors and you give them this role and they just chew it up and john voight really in this Chewing it up. So smug. Full meal. <laughs> so smug. I think him and Ke- so I think he and Kevin Spacey are the most hateable uh Grisham villains. And I guess <laughs> maybe there's a zeitgeisty thing there too. <laughs> and it, <laughs> they they do. Then maybe in real life we wouldn't kill yeah. people as well. Uh there's great footage in the making of of like just the exercises, act, acting exercises he would do with the cast, where he'd tell Dean Softwell, "All right, play." Like instead of rehearsing, be like, "All right, play the scene like you are the 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 queen in Alice of Wonderland," <laughs> and you know Matt Damon is Alice, and you're telling awesome. him like off with her head, and they <laughs> they acted out the scene that way. <laughs> and if you're if you were the kind of actor that was into that, it was great, and it's great watching you know the the making of like that. But maybe you're not the actor kind of actor that is like that. And there's also just a a quick a quick cut of uh, Roy Scheider's face while all the other actors are improving and talking about like you're gonna do that improv, okay? Like wait, is that approved? They're approved improvs. I'm gonna do this, and then just a close up of Roy Scheider going. <laughs> you know not everyone's into it you know just it's sighing, fine. it's like, like oh. it's not for everybody uh but that's you know. also perfect for his character yeah like anno- <laughs> very, he should very be annoyed true. that's that's if if coppola is doing things that are annoying roy scheider for this role then it's working yeah yeah no, uh, that works i i we should give one before we wrap this up we should give one shout out to Michael Girardine, who played Everett Lufkin, the shitty executive who wrote the letter that said, you're stupid, stupid, stupid. That guy, <laughs> it's a thankless role. It is unlikable to the extreme, but damn, he, you hate him from the first second you see him. And, and you he, believe that that's really his job. Yes, he did a great like the job. Whole, that whole, like all the people, all the kind of weird, ugly white dudes that they cast for the insurance company, like are spot on. Like Perfect I really believe casting. that those are actually the guys that work at but whatever he, yeah, this place. The way he's so, he plays the whole thing. And this, I'm sure this is Coppola being a great director. He plays the whole thing sort of bored and yeah. arrogant, like the, he never gets defensive. Like, I think that it, like a natural thing as an actor to do would be to be like, uh-uh, uh-uh. Like, and I'm sure Coppola was just like, no, no, no. You're, play this like this, like you're on the phone with a telemarketer. 
(laughs) That's how he plays it. And he's so rude to to these people who your heart goes out to. Just fantastic. Fantastic. Um, Right. So the Rainmaker, we did it. Good job. Thank you, Andros Jones, for being our only second special guest that we've ever had on this this, uh, show. We, We rarely dip into guests. I hope the audience and, and, uh, is not a, a, does not uh, rebel and stop listening to your show. <laughs> and uh, the next episode we have is going to be a strange one. It's like a weird kind of in between sort of these two periods. We have in the year 2000, Coppola was given two movies made by other people to be the main editor on, The Fantastics and Walter Hill's Supernova, hmm. where he was given the footage and had to fix, basically fix these movies and edit them and make them a a workable product for the studio so we'll cover those both in one episode uh that'll be very interesting uh coppola as editor as sort of second director after the movie's done and kind of directing it and fixing it in the editing process which is very very fascinating that's very weird why did this happen i don't know hopefully we'll find out why and so that'll be our next episode uh coming up it'll be very interesting because like the rainmaker and it's probably we have a special guest for the Rainmaker because it was the the ending of a certain chapter of yeah. Coppola's filmography where this he uh, in the commentary he says this was my last like job as a highly paid Hollywood director and then goes on to talk about being an amateur director on Youth Without Youth which he financed with his wine money after this we yeah. only get money movies that he wine financed money. with yeah. his wine money yeah, including hopefully the hundred million dollar budgeted Megalopolis, which if you've been buying wine for the past twenty years, you, you helped fund. You've <laughs> produced that movie. We yeah, have produced this, that movie with all the wine we bought for the podcast. So, <laughs> yeah, it's great. I'm I'm glad I saw this movie. I I wasn't expecting it to be as good as it was. I yeah, I'm glad. This was the Grisham that Coppola adapted, and I, I couldn't see him adapting another Grisham story. Like I couldn't see Coppola doing The Firm or yeah. or Time to Kill. I can see him doing, doing The Rainmaker, because it seems like a challenge, and like he gets dinged a lot. Like we talked about all throughout the movies he did in the '80s. As like he's just doing this for the money, like you know, this is beneath him. Why is the director of The Godfather doing this movie? Because the director of The Godfather never wanted to make The Godfather. He wanted to actually make this movie. He didn't read The Godfather <laughs> and wanted to turn it into a movie. He read The Rainmaker and wanted to. Turn he made it into The Godfather for the money. He made Rainmaker <laughs> because he actually wanted to make it. He believed in it. Yeah. Oh, you guys are making me so happy. Oh God, I've been alone, so alone with this movie for so long. It's making me cry. Before we <laughs> fully close out, I gotta. If, I don't know if they, they we mentioned Mary Kate Place, but she plays the mother oh, so of, of the, the 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 dying boy, and yeah. she's great. She's great. She's a great character actress. You've seen her in a million things. Uh, she doesn't seem very recognizable. Here, there's just something going on with the look they gave her, and it's great. It, uh, she's great in the movie. We we touched on all the other great cast members of the movie. Wanted to make sure we 
we mentioned her. She's the as Mayor well. Winningham of her generation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've had a I've had a lifelong crush on Mary Kay Place ever since I saw in Mary Hartman Mary Hartman I've well, I've been in love with her. She's pretty so. good in the Big Chill. Never seen yeah. it. That's why I think of her as the Mayor Winningham because she was like the one. She like Mayor Winningham was in Saint Elmo's Fire, Saint Elmo's Fire, and Mary Kay Place was in uh, the Big Chill, which are both these big sort of ensemble cast where everyone became yeah. a huge star and they just became great character actors who yeah. continue to just work forever. Yeah. Also really good in Captain Ron. Good Mary Kay Place in the movie Captain Ron. Uh, you'd be hard uh, to find a Mary Kay Place performance that isn't solid. I agree. I agree. Well, thanks again, Andres, for being on the show. And uh, uh, AJ, do you have any closing statements before we wrap this? Uh, is this our longest episode, or is Apocalypse Now still the longest? Um, we've pretty I've long. got two. I've got two different clocks running. Um, <laughs> this might be our longest this episode, but we have a we have a guest. We have two auteurs to talk about. You know, yeah, Grisham it's a lot to talk Coppola. about this movie. Yeah, so we have a lot to yeah. talk about. I feel like there wasn't a lot of wasted space, except maybe no. for this part where we're talking about how. We had so we much wait. to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> well, can, can I but, can I take um, a moment here to just say I I really hope that people who love this podcast check out the World Is Wrong podcast that I do with Brian and with you. You've been a guest on it several times, and yeah, uh, even as a guest, you are a more astute producer than I am because <laughs> I forgot about <laughs> doing plugs. I always forget about doing plugs. Uh, oh. You've got. Radio 8-Ball and The World is Wrong. Brian, you also have The World is Wrong. Yeah, correct. Uh, what we do on The World is Wrong, in case you don't know, is we celebrate films and film artists The World is Wrong about. Uh, I don't know what we'll be talking about when this one comes out, but we were... Island of Dr. Moreau, I believe, okay. is, will, will be into that one, yeah. which Michael Hare also did an uncredited rewrite on who did the narration for this, so there's a there's a connection. Oh, wow, yeah. Yeah, we're, we're, deep, we're deep in Val... In Val that's the 1996 territory. Island Dr. Moreau with Marlon Brando, so that's kind of... That's, where, that's our Halloween episode. Which is a weird sort of apocalypse now knockoff which also brings us into very much, Coppola territory. very much. And AJ, what else can we find from you? Uh, I'm, I'm on letterbox at AJGO and it's uh, currently October. So uh, I'll be reviewing horror movies leading up to Halloween at the cinema, then and now cinema, then and now dot blogspot.com because blogspot still works. So you should check it out. <laughs> uh, I'll review. I'll be reviewing thirteen movies uh, leading up to to Halloween, and uh, on Letterbox and Twitter, I'll be uh, giving brief write ups on all the horror movies I watch throughout throughout October. Awesome. Uh, I guess this is our unofficial Shocktober episode, talking about the horrors of the insurance. Uh, yeah, the private insurance industry in in America. In reality, totally there's works. nothing I'll... scarier than this film. <laughs> for most of our, listeners. I mean, really, especially because this is the idealized version. Yeah, where the guy, the guy still dies. The guy that that needs the medical transplant still dies. It's just about making the insurance company admit that they were wrong. <laughs> so ultimately, it's a vengeance movie. Yeah, this is like a Charles yeah. Bronson movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
Lee Marvin slapping an insurance company in the face. Revenge thriller. So this movie. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'll make it rain. Well, <laughs> I'm the rainmaker. Uh, <laughs> well, thank you. This is just. I'm sorry. This but is. Did, gr- did you get the sym- symmetry about the rain people and the rainmaker? That that basically brackets Coppola's Hollywood yeah, career. No. Yeah. Yeah. It's very, it's, he's all about making it rain. And some people think that's a negative thing, but in his case, it's a positive thing. And uh, we'll see you next time with a weird episode about Coppola, the fixer upper editor. Can't wait to hear it, man, guys. You, you do a great, <laughs> you do a great, great podcast. Let me speak for all of the listeners who follow it the way I do. Uh, it, you are very slow to, to come out with these, these, and as soon as they come out, I put them in my ears as fast as I can get them. They're so good. <laughs> I can't wait to find out who you're going to cover next. It's a, it's a great podcast you're doing. Thank you. All right. Uh, we will catch you in outer space with uh, James Spader for <laughs> Supernova. Hi, this is Dex Schiffler. I need to speak to Big Rhino. Can you connect me? Big Rhino. Just a second. Okay. Hello. Hey, boss, it's Deck. Oh, hey, Deck. How you doing? I'm good. How are you? Well, I'm cool. Are you here? Well, I'm here and there. Ah, uh, yeah, here and there. <laughs>